Chapter Forty Six of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Forty Six. Eight o'clock had struck before I got into the air that was scented, not disagreeably, by the chips and shavings of the longshore boat builders and mast oar and block makers. All that waterside region of the upper and lower pool below bridge was unknown ground to me, and when I struck down by the river, I found that the spot I wanted was not where I had supposed it to be, and was anything but easy to find. It was called Mill Pond Bank, Chink's Basin, and I had no other guide to Chink's Basin than the old green copper rope-walk. It matters not what stranded ships repairing in dry docks I lost myself among, what old hulls of ships in course of being knocked to pieces, what ooze and slime and other dregs of tide, what yards of shipbuilders and shipbreakers, what rusty anchors blindly biting into the ground, though for years off duty, what mountainous country of accumulated casks and timber, how many rope-walks that were not the old green copper. After several times falling short of my destination, and as often overshooting it, I came unexpectedly round a corner upon Mill Pond Bank. It was a fresh kind of place, all circumstances considered, where the wind from the river had room to turn itself round, and there were two or three trees in it, and there was the stump of a ruined windmill, and there was the old green copper rope-walk, whose long and narrow vista I could trace in the moonlight along a series of wooden frames, set in the ground, that looked like superannuated haymaking rakes, which had grown old, and lost most of their teeth. Selecting from the few queer houses upon Millpond Bank, a house with a wooden front and three stories of bow-window, not bay-window, which is another thing, I looked at the plate upon the door, and read there, Mrs. Wimple. That being the name I wanted, I knocked and an elderly woman of a pleasant and thriving appearance responded. She was immediately deposed, however, by Herbert, who silently led me into the parlour and shut the door. It was an odd sensation to see his very familiar face established quite at home in that very unfamiliar room and region, and I found myself looking at him much as I looked at the corner cupboard with the glass and china, the shells upon the chimney-piece, and the coloured engravings on the wall representing the death of Captain Cook, a ship-launch, and His Majesty King George the Third, in a state coachman's wig, leather-breeches, and top-boots, on the terrace at Windsor. "'All is well, Handel,' said Herbert, "'and he is quite satisfied, though eager to see you. My dear girl is with her father, and if you'll wait till she comes down, I'll make you known to her, and then we'll go upstairs. That's her father.' I had become aware of an alarming growling overhead, and had probably expressed the fact in my countenance. "'I am afraid he is a sad old rascal,' said Herbert, smiling. "'But I have never seen him. Don't you smell rum? He's always at it.' "'At rum?' said I. "'Yes,' returned Herbert. "'And you may suppose how mild it makes his gout. He persists, too, in keeping all the provisions upstairs in his room, and serving them out.' He keeps them on shelves over his head, and will weigh them all. His room must be like a chandler's shop." While he thus spoke, 
the growling noise became a prolonged roar, and then died away. "'What else can be the consequence?' said Herbert, in explanation. "'If you will cut the cheese. A man, with the gout in his right hand and everywhere else, can't expect to get through a double Gloucester without hurting himself.' He seemed to have hurt himself very much, for he gave another furious roar. "'To have Provis for an upper lodger is quite a godsend to Mrs. Wimple,' said Herbert. "'For, of course, people in general won't stand that noise. A curious place, Handel, isn't it?' It was a curious place, indeed, but remarkably well kept and clean. "'Mrs. Wimple,' said Herbert, when I told him so, "'is the best of housewives, and I really do not know what my Clara would do without her motherly help. For Clara has no mother of her own handle, and no relation in the world but old Gruffengrim. "'Surely that's not his name, Herbert?' "'No, no,' said Herbert. "'That's my name for him.' His name is Mr. Barley, but what a blessing it is for the son of my father and mother to love a girl who has no relations, and who can never bother herself or anybody else about her family." Herbert had told me on former occasions, and now reminded me, that he first knew Miss Clara Barley, when she was completing her education at an establishment at Hammersmith, and that on her being recalled home to nurse her father, he and she had confided their affection to the motherly Mrs. Wimple by whom it had been fostered and regulated with equal kindness and discretion ever since. It was understood that nothing of a tender nature could possibly be confided to old Barley, by reason of his being totally unequal to the consideration of any subject more psychological than gout, rum, and purser's stores. As we were thus conversing in a low tone, while old Barley's sustained growl vibrated in the beam that crossed the ceiling, the room-door opened, and a very pretty, slight, dark-eyed girl of twenty or so, came in with a basket in her hand, whom Herbert tenderly relieved at the basket, and presented blushing, as, "'Clara!' She really was a most charming girl, and might have passed for a captive fairy, whom that truculent ogre, old Barley, had pressed into his service. "'Look here,' said Herbert showing me the basket, with a compassionate and tender smile, after he had talked a little. "'Here's poor Clara's supper, served out every night. Here's her allowance of bread, and here's her slice of cheese, and here's her rum, which I drink. This is Mr. Barley's breakfast for to-morrow, served out to be cooked. Two mutton-chops, three potatoes, some split-peas, a little flour, two ounces of butter, a pinch of salt, and all this black pepper. It's stewed up together, and taken hot. And it's a nice thing for the gout, I should think." There was something so natural and winning in Clara's resigned way of looking at these stores in detail, as Herbert pointed them out, and something so confiding, loving, and innocent in her modest manner of yielding herself to Herbert's embracing arm, and something so gentle in her, so much needing protection on Mill Pond Bank by Chinks's Basin and the old green copper rope walk. With old Barley growling in the beam, that I would not have undone the engagement between her and Herbert, for all the money in the pocket-book I had never opened. I was looking at her with pleasure and admiration, when suddenly the growl swelled into a roar again, and a frightful bumping noise was heard above, as if a giant with a wooden leg were trying to bore it through the ceiling to come to us. 
Upon this, Clara said to Herbert, "'Papa wants me, darling,' and ran away. "'There is an unconscionable old shark for you,' said Herbert. "'What do you suppose he wants now, Handel?' "'I don't know,' said I. "'Something to drink?' "'That's it,' cried Herbert, as if I had made a guess of extraordinary merit. "'He keeps his grog ready mixed in a little tub on the table. Wait a moment, and you'll hear Clara lift him up to take some. There he goes.' Another roar, with a prolonged shake at the end. "'Now,' said Herbert, as it was succeeded by silence, "'he's drinking.' "'Now,' said Herbert, as the growl resounded in the beam once more, "'he's down again on his back.' Clara returned soon afterwards, and Herbert accompanied me upstairs to see our charge. As he passed Mr. Barley's door, he was heard hoarsely muttering within, in a strain that rose and fell like wind, the following refrain, in which I substitute good wishes for something quite the reverse. Oi, bless your eyes, here's old Bill Barley, here's old Bill Barley, bless your eyes, here's old Bill Barley on the flat of his back by the Lord, lying on the flat of his back like a drifting old dead flounder, here's your old Bill Barley, bless your eyes, ahoy, bless you. In this strain of consolation, Herbert informed me the invisible Barley would commune with himself by the day and night together often while it was light, having at the same time one eye at a telescope which was fitted on his bed for the convenience of sweeping the river. In his two cabin rooms at the top of the house, which were fresh and airy, and in which Mr. Barley was less audible than below, I found Provis comfortably settled. He expressed no alarm, and seemed to feel none that was worth mentioning, but it struck me that he was softened, indefinably for I could not have said how, and could never afterwards recall how when I tried, but certainly. The opportunity that the day's rest had given me for reflection had resulted in my fully determining to say nothing to him respecting compassion. For anything I knew, his animosity towards the man might otherwise lead to his seeking him out and rushing on his own destruction. Therefore, when Herbert and I sat down with him by his fire, I asked him first of all whether he relied on Wemmick's judgment and sources of information. "'Aye, aye, dear boy,' he answered with a grave nod. "'Jagger's nose!' "'Then I have talked with Wemmick,' said I, "'and have come to tell you what caution he gave me, and what advice.' This I did accurately, with the reservation just mentioned, and I told him how Wemmick had heard in Newgate Prison, whether from officers or prisoners I could not say, that he was under some suspicion, and that my chambers had been watched. How Wemmick had recommended his keeping close for a time, and my keeping away from him, and what Wemmick had said about getting him abroad. I added that, of course, when the time came, I should go with him, or should follow close upon him, as might be safest in Wemmick's judgment. What was to follow that? I did not touch upon. Neither, indeed, was I at all clear or comfortable about it in my own mind, now that I saw him in that softer condition, and in declared peril for my sake. As to altering my way of living, by enlarging my expenses, I put it to him, 
whether in our present unsettled and difficult circumstances, it would not be simply ridiculous, if it were no worse. He could not deny this, and indeed was very reasonable throughout. His coming back was a venture, he said, and he had always known it to be a venture. He would do nothing to make it a desperate venture, and he had very little fear of his safety with such good help. Herbert, who had been looking at the fire and pondering, here said that something had come into his thoughts arising out of Wemmick's suggestion, which it might be worth while to pursue. "'We are both good watermen, Handel, and could take him down the river ourselves when the right time comes. No boat would then be hired for the purpose, and no boatman. That would save at least a chance of suspicion, and any chance is worth saving. Never mind the season. Don't you think it might be a good thing, if you began at once to keep a boat at the temple stairs, and were in the habit of rowing up and down the river? You fall into that habit, and then who notices or minds? Do it twenty or fifty times, and there is nothing special in your doing it the twenty-first or fifty-first. I liked this scheme, and Provis was quite elated by it. We agreed that it should be carried into execution, and that Provis should never recognise us if we came below bridge, and rowed past Mill Pond Bank. But we further agreed that he should pull down the blind in that part of his window which gave upon the east whenever he saw us, and all was right. Our conference being now ended, and everything arranged, I rose to go, remarking to Herbert that he and I had better not go home together, and that I would take half an hour's start of him. "'I don't like to leave you here,' I said to Provis, "'though I cannot doubt your being safer here than near me. Good-bye.' "'Dear boy,' he answered, clasping my hands, "'I don't know when we may meet again, and I don't like good-bye. Say good-night.' Good night. Herbert will go regularly between us, and when the time comes you may be certain I shall be ready. Good night. Good night. We thought it best that he should stay in his own rooms, and we left him on the landing outside his door, holding a light over the stair-rail to light us downstairs. Looking back at him, I thought of the first night of his return, when our positions were reversed, and when I little supposed my heart could ever be as heavy and anxious at parting from him as it was now. Old Barley was growling and swearing when we repassed his door, with no appearance of having ceased or of meaning to cease. When we got to the foot of the stairs, I asked Herbert whether he had preserved the name of Provis. He replied, certainly not, and that the lodger was Mr. Campbell. He also explained that the utmost known of Mr. Campbell there was that he, Herbert, had Mr. Campbell consigned to him, and felt a strong personal interest in his being well cared for, and living a secluded life. So, when we went into the parlour, where Mrs. Wimple and Clara were seated at work, I said nothing of my own interest in Mr. Campbell, but kept it to myself. When I had taken leave of the pretty, gentle, dark-eyed girl, and of the motherly woman, who had not outlived her honest sympathy with a little affair of true love. I felt as if the old green copper rope-walk had grown quite a different place. Old Barley might be as old as the hills, and might swear like a whole field of troopers, but there were redeeming youth and trust and hope enough 
in Chink's basin, to fill it to overflowing. And then I thought of Estella, and of our parting, and went home very sadly. All things were as quiet in the temple as ever I had seen them. The windows of the rooms on that side, lately occupied by Provis, were dark and still, and there was no lounger in Garden Court. I walked past the fountain twice or thrice, before I descended the steps that were between me and my rooms, but I was quite alone. Herbert coming to my bedside when he came in, for I went straight to bed, dispirited and fatigued, made the same report. Opening one of the windows after that, he looked out into the moonlight, and told me that the pavement was as solemnly empty as the pavement of any cathedral at that same hour. Next day I set myself to get the boat. It was soon done, and the boat was brought round to the temple stairs, and lay where I could reach her within a minute or two. Then I began to go out as for training and practice, sometimes alone, sometimes with Herbert. I was often out in cold rain and sleet, but nobody took much note of me after I had been out a few times. At first I kept above Blackfriars Bridge, but as the hours of the tide changed, I took towards London Bridge. It was old London Bridge in those days, and at certain states of the tide there was a race and fall of water there which gave it a bad reputation. But I knew well enough how to shoot the bridge after seeing it done, and so began to row about among the shipping in the pool, and down to Erith. The first time I passed Mill Pond Bank, Herbert and I were pulling a pair of oars, and, both in going and returning, we saw the blind towards the east come down. Herbert was rarely there less frequently than three times in a week, and he never brought me a single word of intelligence that was at all alarming. Still, I knew that there was cause for alarm, and I could not get rid of the notion of being watched. Once received, it is a haunting idea. How many undesigning persons I suspected of watching me, it would be hard to calculate. In short, I was always full of fears for the rash man who was in hiding. Herbert had sometimes said to me that he found it pleasant to stand at one of our windows after dark, when the tide was running down, and to think that it was flowing, with everything it bore, towards Clara. But I thought with dread that it was flowing towards Magwitch, and that any black mark on its surface might be his pursuers, going swiftly, silently, and surely, to take him. End of chapter 46「Some weeks passed without bringing any change. We waited for Wemmick, and he made no sign. If I had never known him out of Little Britain, and had never enjoyed the privilege of being on a familiar footing at the castle, I might have doubted him. Not so for a moment, knowing him as I did. My worldly affairs began to wear a gloomy appearance, and I was pressed for money by more than one creditor. Even I myself began to know the want of money, I mean of ready money in my own pocket, and to relieve it by converting some easily spared articles of jewellery into cash. But I had quite determined— 
that it would be a heartless fraud to take more money from my patron in the existing state of my uncertain thoughts and plans. Therefore, I had sent him the unopened pocket-book by Herbert, to hold in his own keeping, and I felt a kind of satisfaction, whether it was a false kind or a true, I hardly know, in not having profited by his generosity since his revelation of himself. As the time wore on, an impression settled heavily upon me that Estella was married. Fearful of having it confirmed, though it was all but a conviction, I avoided the newspapers, and begged Herbert, to whom I had confided the circumstances of our last interview, never to speak of her to me. Why I hoarded up this last wretched little rag of the robe of hope that was rent, and given to the winds, how do I know? Why did you, who read this, commit that not dissimilar inconsistency of your own, last year, last month, last week? It was an unhappy life that I lived, and its one dominant anxiety, towering over all its other anxieties, like a high mountain above a range of mountains, never disappeared from my view. Still, no new cause for fear arose. Let me start from my bed as I would, with the terror fresh upon me that he was discovered. Let me sit listening as I would, with dread, for Herbert's returning step at night, lest it should be fleeter than ordinary, and winged with evil news. For all that, and much more to like purpose, the round of things went on. Condemned to inaction, and a state of constant restlessness and suspense, I rode about in my boat and waited, 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 as I best could. There were states of the tide when, having been down the river, I could not get back through the eddy-chafed arches and starlings of old London Bridge. Then I left my boat at a wharf near the custom-house, to be brought up afterwards to the temple stairs. I was not averse to doing this, as it served to make me and my boat a commoner incident among the waterside people there. From this slight occasion sprang two meetings that I have now to tell of. One afternoon, late in the month of February, I came ashore at the wharf at dusk. I had pulled down as far as Greenwich with the ebb-tide, and had turned with the tide. It had been a fine, bright day, but had become foggy as the sun dropped, and I had had to feel my way back among the shipping pretty carefully. Both in going and returning, I had seen the signal in his window. All well. As it was a raw evening, and I was cold, I thought I would comfort myself with dinner at once. And as I had hours of dejection and solitude before me, if I went home to the temple, I thought I would afterwards go to the play. The theatre where Mr. Wopsle had achieved his questionable triumph was in that waterside neighbourhood. It is nowhere now. And to that theatre I resolved to go. I was aware that Mr. Wopsle had not succeeded in reviving the drama, but, on the contrary, had rather partaken of its decline. He had been ominously heard of, through the playbills, as a faithful black, in connection with a little girl of noble birth and a monkey. And Herbert had seen him as a predatory tartar of comic propensities, with a face like a red brick and an outrageous hat all over bells. I dined at what Herbert and I used to call a geographical chop-house, where there were maps of the world in porter-pot rims on every half-yard of the tablecloths, and charts of gravy on every one of the knives. 
To this day there is scarcely a single chop-house within the Lord Mayor's dominions, which is not geographical, and wore out the time in dozing over crumbs, staring at gas, and baking in a hot blast of dinners. By and by I roused myself and went to the play. There I found a virtuous boatswain in His Majesty's service, a most excellent man, though I could have wished his trousers not quite so tight in some places, and not quite so loose in others, who knocked all the little men's hats over their eyes, though he was very generous and brave, and who wouldn't hear of anybody's paying taxes, though he was very patriotic. He had a bag of money in his pocket, like a pudding in the cloth, and on that property married a young person in bed furniture, with great rejoicings, the whole population of Portsmouth, nine in number at the last census, turning out on the beach to rub their own hands, and shake everybody else's, and sing, Phil, Phil. A certain dark-complexioned swab, however, who wouldn't fill, or do anything else that was proposed to him, and whose heart was openly stated by the boatswain to be as black as his figurehead, proposed to two other swabs to get all mankind into difficulties, which was so effectually done, the swab family having considerable political influence, that it took half the evening to set things right, and then it was only brought about through an honest little grocer, with a white hat, black gaiters, and red nose, getting into a clock, with a gridiron, and listening, and coming out, and knocking everybody down from behind with the gridiron, whom he couldn't confute with what he had overheard. This led to Mr. Wopsles, who had never been heard of before, coming in with a star and garter on, as a plenipotentiary of great power, direct from the Admiralty, to say that the swabs were all to go to prison on the spot, and that he had brought the boatswain down the Union Jack, as a slight acknowledgment of his public services. The boatswain, unmanned for the first time, respectfully dried his eyes on the jack, and then, cheering up, and addressing Mr. Wopsle as your honour, solicited permission to take him by the fin. Mr. Wopsle, conceding his fin, with a gracious dignity, was immediately shoved into a dusty corner, while everybody danced a hornpipe, and from that corner, surveying the public with a discontented eye, became aware of me. The second piece was the last new grand comic Christmas pantomime, in the first scene of which it pained me to suspect that I detected Mr. Wopsle, with red worsted legs, under a highly magnified phosphoric countenance, and a shock of red curtain fringe for his hair, engaged in the manufacture of thunderbolts in a mine, and displaying great cowardice when his gigantic master came home, very hoarse, to dinner. But he presently presented himself under worthier circumstances, for, the genius of youthful love being in want of assistance, on account of the parental brutality of an ignorant farmer, who opposed the choice of his daughter's heart, by purposely falling upon the object, in a flour-sack, out of the first-floor window, summoned a sententious enchanter, and he, coming up from the Antipodes, rather unsteadily, after an apparently violent journey, proved to be Mr. Wopsle, in a high-crowned hat, with a necromantic work in one volume, under his arm. The business of this enchanter on earth being principally to be talked at, sung at, buttered at, danced at, and flashed at with fires of various colours, he had a good deal of time on his hands. And I observed with great surprise that he devoted it to staring in my direction, as if he were lost in amazement. There was something so remarkable in the increasing glare of Mr. Wopsle's eye, and he seemed to be turning so many things over in his mind, and to grow so confused that I could not make it out. 
I sat thinking of it, long after he had ascended to the clouds in a large watch-case, and still I could not make it out. I was still thinking of it, when I came out of the theatre an hour afterwards, and found him waiting for me near the door. "'How do you do?' said I, shaking hands with him as we turned down the street together. "'I saw that you saw me.' "'Saw you, Mr. Pip?' he returned. "'Yes, of course I saw you. But who else was there?' "'Who else?' "'It is the strangest thing,' said Mr. Wopsle, drifting into his lost look again, "'and yet I could swear to him.' Becoming alarmed, I entreated Mr. Wopsle to explain his meaning. "'Whether I should have noticed him at first but for your being there,' said Mr. Wopsle, going on in the same lost way, "'I can't be positive, yet I think I should.' Involuntarily, I looked round me as I was accustomed to look round me when I went home, for these mysterious words gave me a chill. "'Oh, he can't be in sight,' said Mr. Wopsle. "'He went out before I went off. I saw him go.' Having the reason that I had for being suspicious, I even suspected this poor actor. I mistrusted a design to entrap me into some admission. Therefore I glanced at him as we walked on together, but said nothing. "'I had a ridiculous fancy that he must be with you, Mr. Pip, till I saw that you were quite unconscious of him sitting behind you there like a ghost.' My former chill crept over me again. But I was resolved not to speak yet, for it was quite consistent with his words that he might be set on to induce me to connect these references with Provis. Of course, I was perfectly sure and safe that Provis had not been there. "'I dare say you wonder at me, Mr. Pip. Indeed, I see you do. But it is so very strange. You'll hardly believe what I am going to tell you. I could hardly believe it myself, if you told me.' "'Indeed?' said I. "'No, indeed, Mr. Pip. You remember in old times a certain Christmas day, when you were quite a child, and I dined at Gargery's, and some soldiers came to the door to get a pair of handcuffs mended. I remember it very well. And you remember that there was a chase after two convicts, and that we joined in it, and that Gargery took you on his back, and that I took the lead, and you kept up with me as well as you could. I remember it all very well. Better than he thought except the last clause. And you remember that we came up with the two in a ditch, and that there was a scuffle between them, and that one of them had been severely handled and much mauled about the face by the other? I see it all before me. And that the soldiers lighted torches, and put the two in the centre, and that we went on to see the last of them over the black marshes, with the torchlight shining on their faces, I am particular about that, with the torchlight shining on their faces, when there was an outer ring of dark night all about us. Yes, said I, I remember all that. Then, Mr. Pip, one of those two prisoners sat behind you to-night. I saw him over your shoulder. Steady, I thought. I asked him then. Which of the two do you suppose you saw? "'The one who had been mauled,' he answered readily. 
and I'll swear I saw him. The more I think of him, the more certain I am of him. This is very curious, said I, with the best assumption I could put on of its being nothing more to me. Very curious indeed. I cannot exaggerate the enhanced disquiet into which this conversation threw me, or the special and peculiar terror I felt at Compeyson's having been behind me like a ghost. For, if he had ever been out of my thoughts for a few moments together since the hiding had begun, it was in those very moments when he was closest to me, and to think that I should be so unconscious and off my guard after all my care was as if I had shut an avenue of a hundred doors to keep him out, and then had found him at my elbow. I could not doubt either that he was there, because I was there, and that, however slight an appearance of danger there might be about us, danger was always near and active. I put such questions to Mr. Wopsle as, When did the man come in? He could not tell me that. He saw me, and over my shoulder he saw the man. It was not until he had seen him for some time that he began to identify him. But he had from the first vaguely associated him with me, and known him as somehow belonging to me in the old village time. How was he dressed? Prosperously, but not noticeably otherwise, he thought in black. Was his face at all disfigured? No, he believed not. I believed not, too. For although in my brooding state I had taken no especial notice of the people behind me, I thought it likely that a face at all disfigured would have attracted my attention. When Mr. Wopsle had imparted to me all that he could recall, or I extract, and when I had treated him to a little appropriate refreshment after the fatigues of the evening, we parted. It was between twelve and one o'clock when I reached the temple, and the gates were shut. No one was near me when I went in, and went home. Herbert had come in, and we held a very serious council by the fire. But there was nothing to be done, saving to communicate to Wemmick what I had that night found out, and to remind him that we waited for his hint. As I thought that I might compromise him if I went too often to the castle, I made this communication by letter. I wrote it before I went to bed, and went out and posted it and again no one was near me. Herbert and I agreed that we could do nothing else but be very cautious, and we were very cautious indeed, more cautious than before, if that were possible. And I, for my part, never went near Chinks's basin, except when I rode by, and then I only looked at Mill Pond Bank, as I looked at anything else. End of chapter 47 Chapter forty eight of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty eight. The second of the two meetings referred to in the last chapter occurred about a week after the first. I had again left my boat at the wharf below bridge. The time was an hour earlier in the afternoon and, undecided where to dine, I had strolled up into Cheapside, and was strolling along it, surely the most unsettled person in all the busy concourse, when a large hand was laid upon my shoulder by someone overtaking me. It was Mr. Jaggers's hand, 
and he passed it through my arm. "'As we are going in the same direction, Pip, we may walk together. Where are you bound for?' "'For the temple, I think,' said I. "'Don't you know?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Well,' I returned, glad for once to get the better of him in cross-examination. "'I do not know, for I have not made up my mind.' "'You are going to dine?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'You don't mind admitting that, I suppose?' "'No,' I returned. "'I don't mind admitting that.' "'And are not engaged?' "'I don't mind admitting also that I am not engaged.' "'Then,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'come and dine with me.' I was going to excuse myself, when he added, "'Wemmick's coming.' So I changed my excuse into an acceptance, the few words I had uttered serving for the beginning of either. And we went along Cheapside, and slanted off to Little Britain, while the lights were springing up brilliantly in the shop-windows, and the street-lamplighters, scarcely finding ground enough to plant their ladders on, in the midst of the afternoon's bustle, were skipping up and down, and running in and out, opening more red eyes in the gathering fog than my rush-light tower at the Hummums had opened white eyes in the ghostly wall. At the office in Little Britain there was the usual letter-writing, hand-washing, candle-snuffing, and safe-locking, had closed the business of the day. As I stood idle by Mr. Jaggers's fire, its rising and falling flame made the two casts on the shelf look as if they were playing a diabolical game at bo-peep with me, while a pair of coarse fat office candles, that dimly lighted Mr. Jaggers as he wrote in a corner, were decorated with dirty winding-sheets, as if in remembrance of a host of hanged clients. We went to Gerard Street, all three together, in a hackney-coach and as soon as we got there, dinner was served. Although I should not have thought of making, in that place, the most distant reference by so much as a look to Wemmick's Walworth sentiments, yet I should have had no objection to catching his eye now and then, in a friendly way. But it was not to be done. He turned his eyes on Mr. Jaggers, whenever he raised them from the table, and was as dry and distant to me, as if there were twin Wemmicks, and this was the wrong one. "'Did you send that note of Miss Havisham's to Mr. Pip, Wemmick?' Mr. Jaggers asked, soon after we began dinner. "'No, sir,' returned Wemmick. "'It was going by post when you brought Mr. Pip into the office. Here it is.' He handed it to his principal, instead of to me. "'It's a note of two lines, Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, handing it on. "'Sent up to me by Miss Havisham, on account of her not being sure of your address.' She tells me that she wants to see you on a little matter of business you mentioned to her. You'll go down?" "'Yes,' said I, casting my eyes over the note, which was exactly in those terms. "'When do you think of going down?' "'I have an impending engagement,' said I, glancing at Wemmick, who was putting fish into the post-office. "'That renders me rather uncertain of my time. At once, I think.' "'If Mr. Pip has the intention of going at once,' said Wemmick to Mr. Jaggers, "'he needn't write an answer, you know.' Receiving this as an intimation that it was best not to delay, I settled that I would go to-morrow, and said so. Wemmick drank a glass of wine, and looked with a grimly satisfied air at Mr. Jaggers, but not at me. "'So, Pip, our friend the spider,' said Mr. Jaggers, 
has played his cards. He has won the pool. It was as much as I could do to assent. Ha! He is a promising fellow in his way, but he may not have it all his own way. The stronger will win in the end, but the stronger has to be found out first. If he should turn to and beat her— Surely, I interrupted with a burning face and heart, you do not seriously think that he is scoundrel enough for that, Mr. Jaggers? I didn't say so, Pip. I am putting a case. If he should turn to and beat her, he may possibly get the strength on his side. If it should be a question of intellect, he certainly will not. It would be chance work to give an opinion how a fellow of that sort will turn out in such circumstances, because it's a toss-up between two results. May I ask what they are? A fellow like our friend the Spider, answered Mr. Jaggers, either beats or cringes. He may cringe and growl, or cringe and not growl, but he either beats or cringes. Ask Wemmick his opinion. Either beats or cringes, said Wemmick, not at all addressing himself to me. So, here's to Mrs. Bentley Drummle, said Mr. Jaggers, taking a decanter of choicer wine from his dumb-waiter, and filling for each of us and for himself. And may the question of supremacy be settled to the lady's satisfaction. To the satisfaction of the lady and the gentleman it never will be. Now, Molly, 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 how slow you are to-day! She was at his elbow when he addressed her, putting a dish upon the table. As she withdrew her hands from it, she fell back a step or two, nervously muttering some excuse. And a certain action of her fingers as she spoke arrested my attention. "'What's the matter?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Nothing. Only the subject we were speaking of.' said I, was rather painful to me. The action of her fingers was like the action of knitting. She stood looking at her master, not understanding whether she was free to go, or whether he had more to say to her, and would call her back if she did go. Her look was very intent. Surely I had seen exactly such eyes and such hands, on a memorable occasion, very lately. He dismissed her, and she glided out of the room. But she remained before me, as plainly as if she were still there. I looked at those hands. I looked at those eyes. I looked at that flowing hair. And I compared them with other hands, other eyes, other hair, that I knew of. And with what those might be, after twenty years of a brutal husband and a stormy life. I looked again at those hands and eyes of the housekeeper and thought of the inexplicable feeling that had come over me when I last walked, not alone, in the ruined garden, and through the deserted brewery. I thought how the same feeling had come back when I saw a face looking at me, and a hand waving to me from a stage-coach window, and how it had come back again, and had flashed about me like lightning when I had passed in a carriage, not alone, through a sudden glare of light in a dark street. I thought how one link of association had helped that identification in the theatre, and how such a link, wanting before, had been riveted for me now, when I had passed by a chance swift from Estella's name to the fingers for their knitting action, 
and the attentive eyes, and I felt absolutely certain that this woman was Estella's mother. Mr. Jaggers had seen me with Estella, and was not likely to have missed the sentiments I had been at no pains to conceal. He nodded when I said the subject was painful to me, clapped me on the back, put round the wine again, and went on with his dinner. Only twice more did the housekeeper reappear, and then her stay in the room was very short, and Mr. Jaggers was sharp with her. But her hands were Estella's hands, and her eyes were Estella's eyes, and if she had reappeared a hundred times, I could have been neither more sure nor less sure that my conviction was the truth. It was a dull evening, for Wemmick drew his wine when it came round, quite as a matter of business, just as he might have drawn his salary when that came round, and with his eyes on his chief, sat in a state of perpetual readiness for cross-examination. As to the quantity of wine, his post-office was as indifferent and ready as any other post-office for its quantity of letters. From my point of view, he was the wrong twin all the time, and only externally like the Wemmick of Walworth. We took our leave early, and left together. Even when we were groping among Mr. Jaggers's stock of boots for our hats, I felt that the right twin was on his way back and we had not gone half a dozen yards down Gerard Street in the Walworth direction, before I found that I was walking arm in arm with the right twin, and that the wrong twin had evaporated into the evening air. "'Well,' said Wemmick, "'that's over. He's a wonderful man, without his living lightness. But I feel that I have to screw myself up when I dine with him, and I dine more comfortably unscrewed.' I felt that this was a good statement of the case and told him so. "'Wouldn't say it to anybody but yourself,' he answered. "'I know that what you said between you and me goes no further.' I asked him if he had ever seen Miss Havisham's adopted daughter, Mrs. Bentley Drummle. He said no. To avoid being too abrupt, I then spoke of the aged and of Miss Skiffins. He looked rather sly when I mentioned Miss Skiffins, and stopped in the street to blow his nose with a roll of the head and a flourish not quite free from latent boastfulness. "'Wemmick,' said I, "'do you remember telling me, before I first went to Mr. Jaggers's private house, to notice that housekeeper?' "'Did I?' he replied. "'Ah! Oh, I dare say I did. Deuce take me,' he added suddenly. "'I know I did. I find I'm not quite unscrewed yet.' "'A wild beast tamed, you called her. And what do you call her?' The same. How did Mr. Jaggers tame her, Wemmick? That's his secret. She's been with him many a long year. I wish you would tell me her story. I feel a particular interest in being acquainted with it. You know that what is said between you and me goes no further. Well, Wemmick replied, I don't know her story. That is, I don't know all of it. But what I do know, I'll tell you. We are in our private and personal capacities, of course. Of course. A score or so of years ago, that woman was tried at the Old Bailey for murder, and was acquitted. She was a very handsome young woman, and I believe had some gypsy blood in her. Anyhow, it was hot enough when it was up, as you may suppose. But she was acquitted. Mr. Jaggers was for her, pursued Wemmick, with a look full of meaning, and worked the case in a way quite astonishing. 
It was a desperate case, and it was comparatively early days with him then, and he worked it to general admiration. In fact, it may almost be said to have made him. He worked it himself at the police office, day after day, for many days, contending against even a committal. And at the trial, where he couldn't work it himself, sat under counsel, and, every one knew, put in all the salt and the pepper. The murdered person was a woman, a woman a good ten years older, very much larger, and very much stronger. It was a case of jealousy. They both led tramping lives. And this woman, in Gerard Street here, had been married very young, over the broomstick, as we say, to a tramping man, and was a perfect fury in point of jealousy. The murdered woman, more a match for the man, certainly, in point of years, was found dead in a barn near Hounslow Heath. There had been a violent struggle, perhaps a fight. She was bruised and scratched and torn, and had been held by the throat at last and choked. Now, there was no reasonable evidence to implicate any person but this woman, and, on the improbabilities of her having been able to do it, Mr. Jaggers principally rested his case. "'You may be sure,' said Wemmick, touching me on the sleeve, "'that he never dwelt upon the strength of her hands then, though he sometimes does now.' I had told Wemmick of his showing us her wrists that day of the dinner-party. "'Well, sir,' Wemmick went on, "'it happened, happened, don't you see, that this woman was so very artfully dressed from the time of her apprehension that she looked much slighter than she really was. In particular, her sleeves are always remembered to have been so skilfully contrived that her arms had quite a delicate look. She had only a bruise or two about her, nothing for a tramp, but the backs of her hands were lacerated, and the question was, was it with finger-nails? Now, Mr. Jaggers showed that she had struggled through a great lot of brambles, which were not as high as her face, but which she could not have got through, and kept her hands out of. And bits of those brambles were actually found in her skin, and put in evidence, as well as the fact that the brambles in question were found on examination to have been broken through, and to have little shreds of her dress and little spots of blood upon them here and there. But the boldest point he made was this. It was attempted to be set up in proof of her jealousy that she was under strong suspicion of having, at about the time of the murder, frantically destroyed her child by this man, some three years old, to revenge herself upon him. Mr. Jaggers worked that in this way. We say these are not marks of finger-nails, but marks of brambles, and we show you the brambles. You say they are marks of finger-nails, and you set up the hypothesis as she destroyed her child. You must accept all consequences of that hypothesis, for anything we know, she may have destroyed her child, and the child in clinging to her may have scratched her hands. What then? You are not trying her for the murder of her child. Why don't you? As to this case, if you will have scratches, we say that, for anything we know, you may have accounted for them, assuming for the sake of argument that you have not invented them. To sum up, sir, said Wemmick, Mr. Jaggers was altogether too many for the jury, 
and they gave in. "'Has she been in his service ever since?' "'Yes, but not only that,' said Wemmick. "'She went into his service immediately after her acquittal, tamed as she is now. She has since been taught one thing and another in the way of her duties, but she was tamed from the beginning. "'Do you remember the sex of the child? Said to have been a girl. You have nothing more to say to me to-night?' "'Nothing. I got your letter and destroyed it. Nothing.' We exchanged a cordial good-night, and I went home with new matter for my thoughts, though with no relief from the old. End of chapter 48「Chapter forty nine of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty nine. Putting Miss Havisham's note in my pocket, that it might serve as my credentials for so soon reappearing at Sartis House, in case her waywardness should lead her to express any surprise at seeing me. I went down again by the coach next day. But I alighted at the halfway house, and breakfasted there, and walked the rest of the distance, for I sought to get into the town quietly by the unfrequented ways, and to leave it in the same manner. The best light of the day was gone when I passed along the quiet, echoing courts behind the high street, the nooks of ruin where the old monks had once had their refractories and gardens and where the strong walls were now pressed into the surface of humble sheds and stables, were almost as silent as the old monks in their graves. The cathedral chimes had at once a sadder and a more remote sound to me, as I hurried on avoiding observation, than they had ever had before. So the swell of the old organ was borne to my ears like funeral music, and the rooks, as they hovered about the grey tower, and swung in the bare high trees of the priory garden, seemed to call to me that the place was changed, and that Estella was gone out of it for ever. An elderly woman, whom I had seen before, as one of the servants, who lived in the supplementary house across the back courtyard, opened the gate. The lighted candle stood in the dark passage within, as of old, and I took it up and ascended the staircase alone. Miss Havisham was not in her own room, but was in the larger room across the landing. Looking in at the door, after knocking in vain, I saw her sitting on the hearth, in a ragged chair, close before, and lost in the contemplation of the ashy fire. Doing as I had often done, I went in, and stood, touching the old chimney-piece, where she could see me when she raised her eyes. There was an air of utter loneliness upon her, that would have moved me to pity, though she had wilfully done me a deeper injury than I could charge her with. As I stood compassionating her, and thinking how, in the progress of time, I, too, had come to be a part of the wrecked fortunes of that house, her eyes rested on me. She stared, and said in a low voice, "'Is it real?' "'It is I, Pip. Mr. Jaggers gave me your note yesterday, and I have lost no time.' "'Thank you. Thank you.' As I brought another of the ragged chairs to the hearth, and sat down, 
I remarked a new expression on her face, as if she were afraid of me. "'I want,' she said, "'to pursue that subject you mentioned to me when you were last here, and to show you that I am not all stone. But perhaps you can never believe now that there is anything human in my heart.' When I said some reassuring words, she stretched out her tremulous right hand, as though she was going to touch me. But she recalled it again before I understood the action, or knew how to receive it. "'You said, speaking for your friend, that you could tell me how to do something useful and good, something that you would like done, is it not?' "'Something that I would like done very much. What is it?' I began explaining to her that secret history of the partnership. I had not got far into it, when I judged from her looks that she was thinking in a discursive way of me, rather than of what I said. It seemed to be so, for, when I stopped speaking, many moments passed before she showed that she was conscious of the fact. "'Do you break off?' she asked then, with her former air of being afraid of me. "'Because you hate me too much to bear to speak to me?' "'No, no.' I answered. How can you think so, Miss Havisham? I stopped because I thought you were not following what I said. Perhaps I was not, she answered, putting a hand to her head. Begin again, and let me look at something else. Stay. Now, tell me. She set her hand upon her stick, in the resolute way that sometimes was habitual to her, and looked at the fire with a strong expression of forcing herself to attend. I went on with my explanation, and told her how I had hoped to complete the transaction out of my means, but how in this I was disappointed. That part of the subject, I reminded her, involved matters which could form no part of my explanation, for they were the weighty secrets of another. "'So,' said she, assenting with her head, but not looking at me, and how much money is wanting to complete the purchase? I was rather afraid of stating it, for it sounded a large sum. Nine hundred pounds. If I give you the money for this purpose, will you keep my secret as you have kept your own? Quite as faithfully. And your mind will be more at rest? Much more at rest. Are you very unhappy now? She asked me this question, still without looking at me, but in an unwonted tone of sympathy. I could not reply at the moment, for my voice failed me. She put her left arm across the head of her stick, and softly laid her forehead on it. "'I am far from happy, Miss Havisham, but I have other causes of disquiet than any you know of. They are the secrets I have mentioned.' After a little while. She raised her head and looked at the fire again. "'It is noble in you to tell me that you have other causes of unhappiness. Is it true?' "'Too true. Can I only serve you, Pip, by serving your friend? Regarding that as done, is there nothing I can do for you yourself?' "'Nothing. I thank you for the question. I thank you even more for the tone of the question.' but there is nothing." 
she presently rose from her seat, and looked about the blighted room for the means of writing. There were none there, and she took from her pocket a yellow set of ivory tablets, mounted in tarnished gold, and wrote upon them with a pencil in a case of tarnished gold that hung from her neck. "'You are still on friendly terms with Mr. Jaggers?' "'Quite. I dined with him yesterday.' "'This is an authority to him, to pay you that money, to lay out at your irresponsible discretion for your friend. I keep no money here, but if you would rather Mr. Jaggers knew nothing of the matter, I will send it to you.' "'Thank you, Miss Havisham. I have not the least objection to receiving it from him.' She read me what she had written, and it was direct and clear and evidently intended to absolve me from any suspicion of profiting by the receipt of the money. I took the tablets from her hand, and it trembled again, and it trembled more as she took off the chain to which the pencil was attached, and put it in mine. All this she did, without looking at me. "'My name is on the first leaf. If you can ever write under my name, I forgive her, though ever so long after my broken heart is dust. Pray do it." "'Oh, Miss Havisham,' said I, "'I can do it now. There have been sore mistakes, and my life has been a blind and thankless one, and I want forgiveness and direction far too much to be bitter with you.' She turned her face to me for the first time since she had averted it and, to my amazement, I may even add to my terror, dropped on her knees at my feet, with her folded hands raised to me, in the manner in which, when her poor heart was young and fresh and whole, they must often have been raised to heaven from her mother's side. To see her, with her white hair and her worn face, kneeling at my feet, gave me a shock through all my frame. I entreated her to rise, and got my arms about her to help her up but she only pressed that hand of mine which was nearest to her grasp, and hung her head over it, and wept. I had never seen her shed a tear before, and, in the hope that the relief might do her good, I bent over her without speaking. She was not kneeling now, but was down upon the ground. "'Oh!' she cried despairingly. "'What have I done? What have I done?' "'If you mean, Miss Havisham, what have you done to injure me? Let me answer. Very little. I should have loved her under any circumstances. Is she married?' "'Yes.' It was a needless question, for a new desolation in the desolate house had told me so. "'What have I done? What have I done?' She wrung her hands, and crushed her white hair, and returned to this cry over and over again. "'What have I done?' I knew not how to answer, or how to comfort her. That she had done a grievous thing, in taking an impressionable child, to mould into the form that her wild resentment, spurned affection, and wounded pride, found vengeance in, I knew full well. But that— in shutting out the light of day, she had shut out infinitely more. 
that, in seclusion, she had secluded herself from a thousand natural and healing influences, that her mind, brooding solitary, had grown diseased, as all minds do, and must, and will, that reverse the appointed order of their Maker, I knew equally well. And could I look upon her without compassion, seeing her punishment in the ruin she was, in her profound unfitness for this earth on which she was placed, in the vanity of sorrow which had become a master mania, like the vanity of penitence, the vanity of remorse, the vanity of unworthiness, and other monstrous vanities that have been curses in this world? Until you spoke to her the other day, and until I saw in you a looking-glass that showed me what I once felt myself, I did not know what I had done. What have I done? What have I done? And so again, twenty, fifty times over, what had she done? Miss Havisham, I said, when her cry had died away, you may dismiss me from your mind and conscience, but Estella is a different case, and if you can ever undo any scrap of what you have done amiss, in keeping a part of her right nature away from her, it will be better to do that than to bemoan the past through a hundred years. Yes, yes, I know it. But Pip, my dear, there was an earnest womanly compassion for me in her new affection. My dear, believe this. When she first came to me, I meant to save her from misery like my own. At first, I meant no more. Well, well, said I. I hope so. But as she grew and promised to be very beautiful, I gradually did worse, and with my praises, and with my jewels, and with my teachings, and with this figure of myself always before her, a warning to back and point my lessons, I stole her heart away, and put ice in its place. Better, I could not help saying, to have left her a natural heart, even to be bruised or broken. With that, Miss Havisham looked distractedly at me for a while and then burst out again. What had she done? "'If you knew all my story,' she pleaded, "'you would have some compassion for me, and a better understanding of me.' "'Miss Havisham,' I answered as delicately as I could, "'I believe I may say that I do know your story, and have known it ever since I first left this neighbourhood. It has inspired me with great commiseration, and I hope I understand it and its influences. Does what has passed between us give me any excuse for asking you a question relative to Estella? Not as she is, but as she was when she first came here? She was seated on the ground, with her arms on the ragged chair, and her head leaning on them. She looked full at me when I said this, and replied, Go on. Whose child was Estella? She shook her head. You don't know? She shook her head again. But Mr. Jaggers brought her here, or sent her here? Brought her here? 
Will you tell me how that came about? She answered, in a low whisper, and with caution. I had been shut up in these rooms a long time. I don't know how long. You know what time the clocks keep here. When I told him that I wanted a little girl to rear and love and save from my fate, I had first seen him when I sent for him to lay this place waste for me, having read of him in the newspapers before I and the world parted. He told me that he would look about him for such an orphan child. One night he brought her here asleep, and I called her Estella. Might I ask her age, then? Two or three. She herself knows nothing, but that she was left an orphan, and I adopted her. So convinced I was of that woman's being her mother, that I wanted no evidence to establish the fact in my own mind. But, to any mind, I thought, the connection here was clear and straight. What more could I hope to do by prolonging the interview? I had succeeded on behalf of Herbert. Miss Havisham had told me all she knew of Estella. I had said and done what I could to ease her mind. No matter with what other words we parted. We parted. Twilight was closing in when I went downstairs into the natural air. I called to the woman who had opened the gate when I entered, that I would not trouble her just yet but would walk round the place before leaving. For I had a presentiment that I should never be there again, and I felt that the dying light was suited to my last view of it. By the wilderness of casks that I had walked on long ago, and on which the rain of years had fallen since, rotting them in many places, and leaving miniature swamps and pools of water upon those that stood on end, I made my way to the ruined garden. I went all round it, round by the corner where Herbert and I had fought our battle, round by the paths where Estella and I had walked, so cold, so lonely, so dreary all. Taking the brewery on my way back, I raised the rusty latch of a little door at the garden end of it, and walked through. I was going out at the opposite door, not easy to open now, for the damp wood had started and swelled, and the hinges were yielding, and the threshold was encumbered with a growth of fungus, when I turned my head to look back. A childish association revived with wonderful force in the moment of the slight action, and I fancied that I saw Miss Havisham hanging to the beam. So strong was the impression, that I stood under the beam shuddering from head to foot before I knew it was a fancy, though to be sure I was there in an instant. The mournfulness of the place and time, and the great terror of this illusion, though it was but momentary, caused me to feel an indescribable awe as I came out between the open wooden gates, where I had once wrung my hair, after Stella had wrung my heart. Passing on into the front courtyard, I hesitated whether to call the woman to let me out at the locked gate, of which she had the key, or first to go upstairs and assure myself that Miss Havisham was as safe and well as I had left her. I took the latter course, and went up. I looked into the room where I had left her, and I saw her seated in the ragged chair upon the hearth close to the fire, with her back towards me. In the moment, when I was withdrawing my head to go quietly away, 
I saw a great flaming light spring up. In the same moment, I saw her running at me, shrieking, with a whirl of fire blazing all about her, and soaring at least as many feet above her head as she was high. I had a double-caped great coat on, and over my arm another thick coat. Then I got them off, closed with her, threw her down, and got them over her. That I dragged the great cloth from the table for the same purpose, and with it dragged down the heap of rottenness in the midst, and all the ugly things that sheltered there, that we were on the ground struggling like desperate enemies, and that the closer I covered her, the more wildly she shrieked and tried to free herself. That this occurred, I knew through the result, but not through anything I felt, or thought, or knew I did. I knew nothing, until I knew that we were on the floor, by the great table, and that patches of tinder yet alight were floating in the smoky air, which a moment ago had been her faded bridal dress. Then I looked round, and saw the disturbed beetles and spiders running away over the floor, and the servants coming in with breathless cries at the door. I still held her forcibly down with all my strength, like a prisoner who might escape, and I doubt if I even knew who she was, or why we had struggled, or that she had been in flames, or that the flames were out, until I saw the patches of tinder that had been her garments, no longer a light, but falling in a black shower around us. She was insensible, and I was afraid to have her moved or even touched. Assistance was sent for, and I held her until it came, as if I unreasonably fancied—I think I did—that if I let her go, the fire would break out again and consume her. When I got up, on the surgeon's coming to her with other aid, I was astonished to see that both my hands were burnt, for I had no knowledge of it through the sense of feeling. On examination it was pronounced that she had received serious hurts, but that they of themselves were far from hopeless. The danger lay mainly in the nervous shock. By the surgeon's directions her bed was carried into that room and laid upon the great table, which happened to be well suited to the dressing of her injuries. When I saw her again, an hour afterwards, she lay indeed where I had seen her strike her stick, and had heard her say that she would lie one day. Though every vestige of her dress was burnt, as they told me, she still had something of her old ghastly bridal appearance, for they had covered her to the throat with white cotton wool, and as she lay with the white sheet loosely overlying that, the phantom air of something that had been and was changed was still upon her. I found, on questioning the servants, that Estella was in Paris, and I got a promise from the surgeon that he would write to her by the next post. Miss Havisham's family I took upon myself, intending to communicate with Mr. Matthew Pocket only, and leave him to do as he liked about informing the rest. This I did next day, through Herbert, as soon as I returned to town. There was a stage, that evening, when she spoke collectedly of what had happened, though with a certain terrible vivacity. Towards midnight she began to wander in her speech, and after that it gradually set in that she said innumerable times, in a low, solemn voice, "'What have I done?' And then, "'When she first came, I meant to save her from misery, like mine. And then, take the pencil, 
and write under my name. I forgive her. She never changed the order of these three sentences, but she sometimes left out a word in one or other of them, never putting in another word, but always leaving a blank, and going on to the next word. As I could do no service there, and as I had, nearer home, that pressing reason for anxiety and fear which even her wanderings could not drive out of my mind, I decided in the course of the night that I would return by the early morning coach, walking on a mile or so, and being taken up clear of the town. At about six o'clock of the morning, therefore, I leaned over her and touched her lips with mine, just as they said, not stopping for being touched. Take the pencil and write under my name. I forgive her. End of chapter forty nine. Chapter fifty of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter fifty. My hands had been dressed twice or thrice in the night, and again in the morning. My left arm was a good deal burned to the elbow, and, less severely, as high as the shoulder. It was very painful, but the flames had set in that direction, and I felt thankful it was no worse. My right hand was not so badly burnt, but that I could move the fingers. It was bandaged, of course, but much less inconveniently than my left hand and arm. Those I carried in a sling, and I could only wear my coat like a cloak, loose over my shoulders and fastened at the neck. My hair had been caught by the fire, but not my head or face. When Herbert had been down to Hammersmith and seen his father, he came back to me at our chambers, and devoted the day to attending on me. He was the kindest of nurses, and at stated times took off the bandages, and steeped them in the cooling liquid that was kept ready, and put them on again, with a patient tenderness that I was deeply grateful for. At first, as I lay quiet on the sofa, I found it painfully difficult, I might say impossible, to get rid of the impression of the glare of the flames, the hurry and noise, and the fierce burning smell. If I dozed for a minute, I was awakened by Miss Havisham's cries, and by her running at me with all that height of fire above her head. This pain of the mind was much harder to strive against than any bodily pain I suffered, and Herbert, seeing that, did his utmost to hold my attention engaged. Neither of us spoke of the boat, but we both thought of it. That was made apparent by our avoidance of the subject, and by our agreeing, without agreement, to make my recovery of the use of my hands a question of so many hours, not of so many weeks. My first question when I saw Herbert had been, of course, whether all was well down the river. As he replied in the affirmative, with perfect confidence and cheerfulness, we did not resume the subject until the day was wearing away. But then, as Herbert changed the bandages, more by the light of the fire than by the outer light, he went back to it spontaneously. "'I sat with Provis last night, Handel. Two good hours. Where was Clara?' "'Dear little thing,' said Herbert, "'she was up and down with Gruff and Grim all the evening. 
He was perpetually pegging at the floor the moment she left his sight. I doubt if he can hold out long, though. What with rum and pepper, and pepper and rum, I should think his pegging must be nearly over. And then you will be married, Herbert? How can I take care of the dear child otherwise? Lay your arm out upon the back of the sofa, my dear boy, and I'll sit down here, and get the bandage off so gradually that you shall not know when it comes. I was speaking of Provis. Do you know Handel? He improves. I have said to you I thought he was softened when I last saw him. So you did, and so he is. He was very communicative last night, and told me more of his life. You remember his breaking off here about some woman that he had had great trouble with? Oh, did I hurt you? I had started, but not under his touch. His words had given me a start. I had forgotten that, Herbert, but I remember it now you speak of it. Well, he went into that part of his life, and a darker wild part it is. Shall I tell you? Or would it worry you just now? Tell me, by all means, every word. Herbert bent forward to look at me more nearly, as if my reply had been rather more hurried or more eager than he could quite account for. "'Your head is cool,' he said, touching it. "'Quite,' said I. "'Tell me what Provost said, my dear Herbert.' "'It seems,' said Herbert, "'there's, there's a bandage off most charmingly, and now comes the cool one. Makes you shrink at first, my poor dear fellow, don't it? But it will be comfortable presently.' "'It seems that the woman was a young woman, and a jealous woman, and a revengeful woman, revengeful handle, to the last degree. To what last degree? Murder. Does it strike too cold in that sensitive place? I don't feel it. How did she murder? Whom did she murder? Why, the deed may not have merited quite so terrible a name, said Herbert, but she was tried for it, and Mr. Jaggers defended her, and the reputation of that defence first made his name known to Provis. It was another and a stronger woman who was the victim, and there had been a struggle in a barn. Who began it, or how fair it was, or how unfair, may be doubtful, but how it ended is certainly not doubtful, for the victim was found throttled. Was the woman brought in guilty? No, she was acquitted. My poor Handel, I hurt you. It is impossible to be gentler, Herbert. Yes, what else? This acquitted young woman and Provis had a little child a little child of whom Provis was exceedingly fond. On the evening of the very night, when the object of her jealousy was strangled, as I tell you, the young woman presented herself before Provis for one moment, and swore that she would destroy the child, which was in her possession, and he should never see it again. Then she vanished. There's the worst arm comfortably in the sling once more, and now there remains but the right hand, which is a far easier job. I can do it better by this light than by a stronger, for my hand is steadiest when I don't see the poor blistered patches too distinctly. You don't think your breathing is affected, my dear boy? You seem to breathe quickly. Perhaps I do, Herbert. Did the woman keep her oath? Here comes the darkest part of Provis's life. She did. That is, he says she did. Why, of course, my dear boy, returned Herbert, in a tone of surprise, and again bending forward to get a nearer look at me. He says it all. I have no other information. No, to be sure. Now whether, pursued Herbert, he had used the child's mother ill, or whether he had used the child's mother well, Provis doesn't say. But, 
She had shared some four or five years of the wretched life he described to us at his fireside, and he seems to have felt pity for her, and forbearance towards her. Therefore, fearing he should be called upon to depose about this destroyed child, and so be the cause of her death, he hid himself, much as he grieved for the child, kept himself dark, as he says, out of the way and out of the trial, and was only vaguely talked of as a certain man called Abel, out of whom the jealousy arose. After the acquittal she disappeared, and thus he lost the child and the child's mother. "'I want to ask—a moment, my dear boy, and I have done—that evil genius, Compayson, the worst of scoundrels among many scoundrels, knowing of his keeping out of the way at that time, and of his reasons for doing so, of course afterwards held the knowledge over his head as a means of keeping him poorer, and working him harder. It was clear last night that this barbed the point of Provis's animosity. "'I want to know,' said I, "'and particularly, Herbert, whether he told you when this happened?' "'Particularly? Let me remember, then, uh, what he said as to that. His expression was, "'A round score a year ago, and a almost directly after I took up we compassion. How old were you when you came upon him in the churchyard? I think in my seventh year. Aye, it had happened some three or four years then, he said, and you brought into his mind the little girl so tragically lost, who would have been about your age. Herbert, said I, after a short silence in a hurried way, can you see me best by the light of the window, or the light of the fire? By the firelight, answered Herbert, coming close again. "'Look at me.' "'I do look at you, my dear boy.' "'Touch me.' "'I do touch you, my dear boy.' "'You are not afraid that I am in any fever, or that my head is much disordered by the accident of last night?' "'No, my dear boy,' said Herbert, after taking time to examine me. "'You are rather excited, but you are quite yourself.' "'I know I am quite myself.' And the man we have in hiding down the river is Estella's father. End of chapter fifty. Chapter fifty one of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter fifty one. What purpose I had in view, when I was hot on tracing out and proving Estella's parentage, I cannot say. It will presently be seen that the question was not before me in a distinct shape, until it was put before me by a wiser head than my own. But when Herbert and I had held our momentous conversation, I was seized with a feverish conviction that I ought to hunt the matter down, that I ought not to let it rest, but that I ought to see Mr. Jaggers and come at the bare truth. I really do not know whether I felt that I did this for Estella's sake, or whether I was glad to transfer to the man in whose preservation I was so much concerned, some rays of the romantic interest that had so long surrounded her. Perhaps the latter possibility may be the nearer to the truth. Anyway, I could scarcely be withheld from going out to Gerard Street that night. Herbert's representations that if I did, I should probably be laid up and stricken useless, 
when our fugitive's safety would depend upon me, alone restrained my impatience. On the understanding, again and again reiterated, that come what would, I was to go to Mr. Jaggers to-morrow. I at length submitted to keep quiet, and to have my hurts looked after, and to stay at home. Early next morning we went out together, and at the corner of Giltspur Street, by Smithfield, I left Herbert to go his way into the city, and took my way to Little Britain. There were periodical occasions, when Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick went over the office accounts, and checked off the vouchers, and put all things straight. On these occasions Wemmick took his books and papers into Mr. Jaggers's room, and one of the upstairs clerks came down into the outer office. Finding such a clerk on Wemmick's post that morning, I knew what was going on. But I was not sorry to have Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick together, as Wemmick would then hear for himself that I said nothing to compromise him. My appearance with my arm bandaged, and my coat loose over my shoulders, favoured my object. Although I had sent Mr. Jaggers a brief account of the accident, as soon as I had arrived in town, yet I had to give him all the details now, and the specialty of the occasion caused our talk to be less dry and hard, and less strictly regulated by the rules of evidence than it had been before. While I described the disaster, Mr. Jaggers stood, according to his wont, before the fire. Wemmick leaned back in his chair, staring at me, with his hands in the pockets of his trousers, and his pen put horizontally into the post. The two brutal casts, always inseparable in my mind from the official proceedings, seemed to be congestively considering whether they didn't smell fire at the present moment. My narrative finished, and their questions exhausted, I then produced Miss Havisham's authority to receive the nine hundred pounds for Herbert. Mr. Jaggers's eyes retired a little deeper into his head when I handed him the tablets, but he presently handed them over to Wemmick, with instructions to draw the cheque for his signature. While that was in course of being done, I looked on at Wemmick as he wrote, and Mr. Jaggers, poising and swaying himself on his well-polished boots, looked on at me. "'I am sorry, Pip,' said he, as I put the cheque in my pocket when he had signed it, "'that we do nothing for you.' "'Miss Havisham was good enough to ask me,' I returned, "'whether she could do nothing for me, and I told her no.' "'Everybody should know his own business,' said Mr. Jaggers, and I saw Wemmick's lips form the words, "'Portable Property.' "'I should not have told her no, if I had been you,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'but every man ought to know his own business best.' "'Every man's business,' said Wemmick, rather reproachfully towards me, "'is portable property.' As I thought the time was now come for pursuing the theme I had at heart, I said, turning on Mr. Jaggers, "'I did ask something of Miss Havisham, however, sir. I asked her to give me some information relative to her adopted daughter, and she gave me all she possessed.' "'Did she?' said Mr. Jaggers, bending forward to look at his boots, and then straightening himself. "'Ha! Huh. I don't think I should have done so.' if I had been Miss Havisham, but she ought to know her own business best. I know more of the history of Miss Havisham's adopted child than Miss Havisham herself does, sir. I know her mother. 
Mr. Jaggers looked at me inquiringly, and repeated, "'Mother?' "'I have seen her mother within these three days.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'And so have you, sir. And you have seen her still more recently.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Perhaps I know more of Estella's history than even you do,' said I. "'I know her father, too.' A certain stop that Mr. Jaggers came to in his manner—he was too self-possessed to change his manner, but he could not help its being brought to an indefinably attentive stop—assured me that he did not know who her father was. This I had strongly suspected from Provis's account, as Herbert had repeated it, of his having kept himself dark, which I pieced on to the fact that he himself was not Mr. Jaggers's client, until some four years later and when he could have no reason for claiming his identity. But I could not be sure of this unconsciousness on Mr. Jaggers's part before, though I was quite sure of it now. "'So, you know the young lady's father, Pip?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Yes,' I replied. "'And his name is Provis, from New South Wales.' Even Mr. Jaggers started when I said those words. It was the slightest start that could escape a man, the most carefully repressed and the soonest checked, but he did start, though he made it a part of the action of taking out his pocket-handkerchief. How Wemmick received the announcement, I am unable to say, for I was afraid to look at him just then, lest Mr. Jaggers's sharpness should detect that there had been some communication unknown to him between us. "'And on what evidence, Pip?' asked Mr. Jaggers, very coolly, as he paused with his handkerchief halfway to his nose. "'Does Provis make this claim?' "'He does not make it,' said I, "'and has never made it, and has no knowledge or belief that his daughter is in existence.' For once the powerful pocket-handkerchief failed. My reply was so unexpected that Mr. Jaggers put the handkerchief back into his pocket without completing the usual performance folded his arms, and looked with stern attention at me, though with an immovable face. Then I told him all I knew, and how I knew it, with the one reservation that I left him to infer that I knew from Miss Havisham what I in fact knew from Wemmick. I was very careful indeed as to that. Nor did I look towards Wemmick until I had finished all I had to tell, and had been for some time silently meeting Mr. Jaggers's look. When I did at last turn my eyes in Wemmick's direction, I found that he had unposted his pen, and was intent upon the table before him. "'Ha!' Ah, said Mr. Jaggers at last, as he moved towards the papers on the table. "'What item was it you were at, Wemmick, when Mr. Pip came in?' But I could not submit to be thrown off in that way, and I made a passionate, almost an indignant appeal to him to be more frank and manly with me. I reminded him of the false hopes into which I had lapsed, the length of time they had lasted, and the discovery I had made, and I hinted at the danger that weighed upon my spirits. I represented myself as being surely worthy of some little confidence from him, in return for the confidence I had just now imparted. I said that I did not blame him, or suspect him, or mistrust him, but I wanted assurance of the truth from him. And if he asked me why I wanted it, and why I thought I had any right to it, 
I would tell him, little as he cared for such poor dreams, that I had loved Estella dearly and long, and that although I had lost her, and must live a bereaved life, whatever concerned her was still nearer and dearer to me than anything else in the world. And seeing that Mr. Jagger stood quite still and silent, and apparently quite obdurate under this appeal, I turned to Wemmick and said, "'Wemmick, I know you to be a man with a gentle heart. I have seen your pleasant home, and your old father, and all the innocent, cheerful, playful ways with which you refresh your business life. And I entreat you to say a word for me to Mr. Jaggers, and to represent to him that, all circumstances considered, he ought to be more open with me. I have never seen two men look more oddly at one another than Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick did, after this apostrophe. At first, a misgiving crossed me that Wemmick would be instantly dismissed from his employment. But it melted, as I saw Mr. Jaggers relax into something like a smile, and Wemmick become bolder. "'What's all this?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'You with an old father, and you with pleasant and playful ways?' "'Well,' returned Wemmick, "'if I don't bring him here, what does it matter?' "'Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, laying his hand upon my arm and smiling openly, "'this man must be the most cunning impostor in all London.' "'Not a bit of it.' returned Wemmick, growing bolder and bolder. Oh, "'I think you're another.' Again they exchanged their former odd looks, each apparently still distrustful that the other was taking him in. "'You with a pleasant home?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Since it don't interfere with business,' returned Wemmick, "'let it be so. Now, I'll look at you, sir. I shouldn't wonder if you might be planning and contriving to have a pleasant home of your own one of these days, when you're tired of all this work." Mr. Jaggers nodded his head retrospectively two or three times, and actually drew a sigh. "'Pip,' said he, "'we won't talk about poor dreams. You know more about such things than I, having much fresher experience of that kind. But now, about this other matter, I'll put a case to you. Mind, I admit nothing. He waited for me to declare that I quite understood that he expressly said that he admitted nothing. "'Now, Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'put this case, put the case that a woman, under such circumstances as you have mentioned, held her child concealed, and was obliged to communicate the fact to her legal adviser, on his representing to her that he must know—' with an eye to the latitude of his defence, how the fact stood about that child, put the case that at the same time he held a trust to find a child for an eccentric rich lady to adopt and bring up. I follow you, sir. Put the case that he lived in an atmosphere of evil, and that all he saw of children was their being generated in great numbers for certain destruction. Put the case that he often saw children solemnly tried at a criminal bar, where they were held up to be seen, put the case that he habitually knew of their being imprisoned, whipped, transported, neglected, cast out, qualified in all ways for the hangman, and growing up to be hanged. 
put the case that pretty nigh all the children he saw in his daily business life he had reason to look upon as so much spawn to develop into the fish that were to come to his net to be prosecuted defended forsworn made orphans bedeviled somehow i follow you sir put the case pip that here was one pretty little child out of the heap who could be saved whom the father believed dead and dared make no stir about as to whom over the mother the legal adviser had this power i know what you did and how you did it you came so and so this was your manner of attack and this the manner of resistance you went so and so you did such and such things to divert suspicion i have tracked you through it all and i tell you it all part with the child unless it should be necessary to produce it to clear you and then it shall be produced give the child into my hands and i will do my best to bring you off if you are saved your child is saved too if you are lost your child is still saved put the case that this was done and that the woman was cleared i understand you perfectly but that i make no admissions that you make no admissions and wemmick repeated no admissions put the case pip that passion and the terror of death had a little shaken the woman's intellect and that when she was set at liberty she was scared out of the ways of the world and went to him to be sheltered put the case that he took her in and that he kept down the old wild violent nature whenever he saw an inkling of its breaking out by asserting his power over her in the old way do you comprehend the imaginary case quite put the case that the child grew up and was married for money that the mother was still living that the father was still living that the mother and father unknown to one another were dwelling within so many miles furlongs yards if you like of one another that the secret was still a secret except that you had got wind of it put that last case to yourself very carefully i do i ask wemmick to put it to himself very carefully and wemmick said i do for whose sake would you reveal the secret for the father's i think he would not be much the better for the mother for the mother's i think if she had done such a deed she would be safer where she was for the daughters i think it would hardly serve her to establish her parentage for the information of her husband and to drag her back to disgrace after an escape of twenty years pretty secure to last for life but add the case that you had loved her pip and had made her the subject of those poor dreams which have at one time or another been in the heads of more men than you think likely and i tell you that you had better and would much sooner when you had thought well of it chop off that bandaged left hand of yours with your bandaged right hand and then pass the chopper on to wemmick there to cut that off too i looked at wemmick whose face was very grave 
he gravely touched his lips with his forefinger. I did the same. Mr. Jaggers did the same. "'Now, Wemmick,' said the latter, then resuming his usual manner, "'what item was it you were at when Mr. Pip came in?' Standing by for a little, while they were at work, I observed that the odd looks they had cast at one another were repeated several times, with this difference now, that each of them seemed suspicious, not to say conscious, of having shown himself in a weak and unprofessional light to the other. For this reason, I suppose they were now inflexible with one another, Mr. Jaggers being highly dictatorial, and Wemmick obstinately justifying himself whenever there was the smallest point in abeyance for a moment. I had never seen them on such ill terms, but generally they got on very well indeed together. But they were both happily relieved by the opportune appearance of Mike, the client with the fur cap, and the habit of wiping his nose on his sleeve, whom I had seen on the very first day of my appearance within those walls. This individual, who, either in his own person, or in that of some member of his family, seemed to be always in trouble, which in that place meant Newgate called to announce that his eldest daughter was taken up on suspicion of shoplifting. As he imparted this melancholy circumstance to Wemmick, Mr. Jaggers, standing magisterially before the fire, and taking no share in the proceedings, Mike's eye happened to twinkle with the tear. "'What are you about?' demanded Wemmick, with the utmost indignation. "'What do you come slivelling here for?' "'I didn't go to do it, Mr. Wemmick.' "'You did?' said Wemmick. "'How dare you! You're not in a fit state to come here. If you can't come here without spluttering like a bad pen, what do you mean by it?' "'A man can't help his feelings, Mr. Wemmick,' pleaded Mike. "'His what?' demanded Wemmick, quite savagely. "'Say that again!' "'Now look here, my man,' said Mr. Jaggers, advancing a step, and pointing to the door. "'Get out of this office. I have no feelings here. Get out!' "'He serves you right,' said Wemmick. "'Get out!' So the unfortunate Mike very humbly withdrew, and Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick, appeared to have re-established their good understanding, and went to work again with an air of refreshment upon them, as if they had just had lunch. End of chapter 51「Chapter 52 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 52 From Little Britain I went with my cheque in my pocket to Miss Skiffins's brother, the accountant, and Miss Skiffins's brother, the accountant, going straight to Clarica's and bringing Clarica to me, I had the great satisfaction of concluding that arrangement. It was the only good thing I had done, and the only completed thing I had done since I was first apprised of my great expectations. Clarica informing me on that occasion that the affairs of the house were steadily progressing, that he would now be able to establish a small branch-house in the east, 
which was much wanted for the extension of the business, and that Herbert, in his new partnership capacity, would go out and take charge of it. I found that I must have prepared for a separation from my friend, even though my own affairs had been more settled. And now, indeed, I felt as if my last anchor were loosening its hold, and I should soon be driving with the winds and waves. But there was recompense in the joy with which Herbert would come home of a night, and tell me of these changes, little imagining that he told me no news, and would sketch airy pictures of himself conducting Clara Barley to the land of the Arabian Nights, and of me going out to join them, with a caravan of camels, I believe, and of our all going up the Nile and seeing wonders. Without being sanguine as to my part in these bright plans, I felt that Herbert's way was clearing fast, and that old Bill Barley had but to stick to his pepper and rum, and his daughter would soon be happily provided for. We had now got into the month of March. My left arm, though it presented no bad symptoms, took in the natural course so long to heal that I was still unable to get a coat on. My right arm was tolerably restored, disfigured, but fairly serviceable. On a Monday morning, when Herbert and I were at breakfast, I received the following letter from Wemmick by the post. Walworth, burn this as soon as read. Early in the week, or say Wednesday, you might do what you know of, if you felt disposed to try it. Now burn. When I had shown this to Herbert, and had put it in the fire, but not before we had both got it by heart, we considered what to do. For, of course, my being disabled could now be no longer kept out of view. "'I have thought it over again and again,' said Herbert, "'and I think I know a better course than taking a Thames waterman. Take Startop, a good fellow, a skilled hand, fond of us, and enthusiastic and honourable.' I had thought of him more than once. "'But how much would you tell him, Herbert?' It is necessary to tell him very little. Let him suppose it a mere freak, but a secret one, until the morning comes. Then let him know that there is urgent reason for your getting Provis aboard and away. You go with him? No doubt. Where? It had seemed to me, in the many anxious considerations I had given the point, almost indifferent what port we made for—Hamburg, Rotterdam, Antwerp. The place signified little so that he was got out of England. Any foreign steamer that fell in our way, and would take us up, would do. I had always proposed to myself to get him well down the river in the boat, certainly well beyond Gravesend, which was a critical place for search or inquiry if suspicion were afoot. As foreign steamers would leave London at about the time of high water, our plan would be to get down the river by a previous ebb-tide and lie by in some quiet spot, until we could pull off to one. The time when one would be due where we lay, wherever that might be, could be calculated pretty nearly if we made inquiries beforehand. Herbert assented to all this, and we went out immediately after breakfast to pursue our investigations. We found that a steamer for Hamburg was likely to suit our purpose best, and we directed our thoughts chiefly to that vessel but we noted down what other foreign steamers would leave London with the same tide, and we satisfied ourselves that we knew the build and colour of each. We then separated for a few hours, I to get at once such passports as were necessary, Herbert to see Startup at his lodgings. 
we both did what we had to do, without any hindrance, and when we met again at one o'clock, reported it done. I, for my part, was prepared with passports. Herbert had seen start up, and he was more than ready to join. Those two should pull a pair of oars, we settled, and I would steer. Our charge would be sitter, and keep quiet. As speed was not our object, we should make way enough. We arranged that Herbert should not come home to dinner before going to Mill Pond Bank that evening, that he should not go there at all to-morrow evening, Tuesday, that he should prepare Provis to come down to some stairs hard by the house on Wednesday, when he saw us approach, and not sooner, that all the arrangements with him should be concluded that Monday night, and that he should be communicated with no more in any way until we took him on board. These proportions, well understood by both of us, I went home. On opening the outer door of our chambers with my key, I found a letter in the box, directed to me, a very dirty letter, though not ill-written. It had been delivered by hand, of course, since I left home, and its contents were these. If you are not afraid to come to the old marshes to-night, or to-morrow night at nine, and to come to the little sluice-house by the lime-kiln, you had better come. If you want information regarding your uncle Provis, you had much better come and tell no one, and lose no time. You must come alone. Bring this with you." I had had load enough upon my mind before the receipt of this strange letter. What to do now I could not tell. And the worst was, that I must decide quickly, or I should miss the afternoon coach, which would take me down in time for to-night. Tomorrow night I could not think of going for it would be too close upon the time of the flight. And again, for anything I knew, the proffered information might have some important bearing on the flight itself. If I had had ample time for consideration, I believe I should still have gone. Having hardly any time for consideration, my watch showing me that the coach started within half an hour, I resolved to go. I should certainly not have gone, but for the reference to my uncle Provis, that, coming on Wemmick's letter and the morning's busy preparation, turned the scale. It is so difficult to become clearly possessed of the contents of almost any letter in a violent hurry, that I had to read this mysterious epistle again, twice, before its injunction to me to be secret got mechanically into my mind. Yielding to it in the same mechanical kind of way, I left a note in pencil for Herbert, telling him that as I should be soon going away, I knew not for how long. I had decided to hurry down and back, to ascertain for myself how Miss Havisham was faring. I had then barely time to get my great-coat, lock up the chambers, and make for the coach-office by the short byways. If I had taken a hackney-chariot, and gone by the streets, I should have missed my aim. Going as I did, I caught the coach just as it came out of the yard. I was the only inside passenger jolting away knee-deep in straw, when I came to myself. For I really had not been myself since the receipt of the letter. It had so bewildered me, ensuing on the hurry of the morning. The morning hurry and flutter had been great, for, long and anxiously as I had waited for Wemmick, his hint had come like a surprise at last. And now I began to wonder at myself for being in the coach, and to doubt whether I had sufficient reason for being there and to consider whether I should get out presently, and go back, 
and to argue against ever heeding an anonymous communication, and, in short, to pass through all those phases of contradiction and indecision to which I suppose very few hurried people are strangers. Still, the reference to Provis by name mastered everything. I reasoned, as I had reasoned already, without knowing it, if that be reasoning, in case any harm should befall him through my not going, how could I ever forgive myself? It was dark before we got down, and the journey seemed long and dreary to me, who could see little of it inside, and who could not go outside in my disabled state. Avoiding the blue boar, I put up at an inn of minor reputation down the town, and ordered some dinner. While it was preparing, I went to Sartor's house, and inquired for Miss Havisham. She was still very ill, though considered something better. My inn had once been a part of an ancient ecclesiastical house, and I dined in a little octagonal common-room, like a font. As I was not able to cut my dinner, the old landlord with a shining bald head did it for me. This bringing us into conversation, he was so good as to entertain me with my own story, of course with the popular feature that Pumblechook was my earliest benefactor, and the founder of my fortunes. "'Do you know the young man?' said I. "'Know him?' repeated the landlord. "'Ever since he was, no eye at all. "'Does he ever come back to this neighbourhood?' "'Ah, he comes back,' said the landlord, "'to his great friends now and again, "'and gives the cold shoulder to the man that made him.' "'What man is that?' "'Him that I speak of.' said the landlord. Mr. Pumblechook. Is he ungrateful to no one else? No doubt he would be, if he could, returned the landlord. But he can't. And why? Because Pumblechook done everything for him. Does Pumblechook say so? Say so, replied the landlord. He ain't no call to say so. But does he say so? It would turn a man's blood to white wine winegar, to hear him tell of it, sir," said the landlord. I thought, yet, Joe, dear Joe, you never tell of it. Long-suffering and loving Joe, you never complain, nor you, sweet-tempered Biddy. Your appetite's been touched like by your accident," said the landlord glancing at the bandaged arm under my coat. "'Try a tenderer bit.' "'No, thank you,' I replied, turning from the table to brood over the fire. "'I can eat no more. Please take it away.' I had never been struck at so keenly for my thanklessness to Joe as to the brazen impostor Pumblechook. The falser he, the truer Joe. The meaner he, the nobler Joe. My heart was deeply and most deservedly humbled, as I mused over the fire for an hour or more. The striking of the clock aroused me, but not from my dejection or remorse, and I got up and had my coat fastened round my neck and went out. I had previously sought in my pockets for the letter that I might refer to it again, but I could not find it, and was uneasy to think that it must have been dropped in the straw of the coach. I knew very well, however, at the appointed place was the little sluice-house by the lime-kiln on the marshes, 
and the hour nine. Towards the marshes I now went straight, having no time to spare. End of chapter 52「hardly broad enough to hold the red large moon. In a few minutes she had ascended out of that clear field, in among the piled mountains of cloud. There was a melancholy wind, and the marshes were very dismal. A stranger would have found them insupportable, and even to me they were so oppressive that I hesitated, half inclined to go back. But I knew them well, and could have found my way on a far darker night and had no excuse for returning, being there. So, having come there against my inclination, I went on against it. The direction that I took was not that in which my old home lay, nor that in which we had pursued the convicts. My back was turned towards the distant hulks as I walked on, and, though I could see the old lights away on the spits of sand, I saw them over my shoulder. I knew the lime-kiln, as well as I knew the old battery, but they were miles apart, so that if a light had been burning at each point that night, there would have been a long strip of the blank horizon between the two bright specks. At first I had to shut some gates after me, and now and then to stand still, while the cattle that were lying in the banked-up pathway arose and blundered down among the grass and reeds. But after a little while I seemed to have the whole flats to myself. It was another half-hour before I drew near to the kiln. The lime was burning with a sluggish, stifling smell, but the fires were made up and left, and no workmen were visible. Hard by was a small stone quarry. It lay directly in my way, and had been worked that day, as I saw by the tools and barrows that were lying about. Coming up again to the marsh level of this excavation, for the rude path lay through it, I saw a light in the old sluice-house. I quickened my pace, and knocked the door with my hand. Waiting for some reply, I looked about me, noticing how the sluice was abandoned and broken, and how the house, of wood with a tiled roof, would not be proof against the weather much longer, if it were so even now, and how the mud and ooze were coated with lime, and how the choking vapour of the kiln crept in a ghostly way towards me. Still there was no answer, and I knocked again. No answer still, and I tried the latch. It rose under my hand, and the door yielded. Looking in, I saw a lighted candle on a table, a bench, and a mattress on a truckle bedstead. As there was a loft above, I called, "'Is there any one here?' But no voice answered. Then I looked at my watch, and finding that it was past nine, called again. "'Is there any one here?' There being still no answer, I went out at the door, irresolute what to do. It was beginning to rain fast. Seeing nothing save what I had seen already, I turned back into the house, 
and stood just within the shelter of the doorway, looking out into the night. While I was considering that someone must have been there lately, and must soon be coming back, or the candle would not be burning, it came into my head to look if the wick were long. I turned round to do so, and had taken up the candle in my hand, when it was extinguished by some violent shock, and the next thing I comprehended was that I had been caught in a strong running noose thrown over my head from behind. "'Now,' said a suppressed voice with an oath, "'I've got you.' "'What? What is this?' I cried, struggling. "'Who is it? Help! Help! Help!' Not only were my arms pulled close to my sides, but the pressure on my bad arm caused me exquisite pain. Sometimes a strong man's hand, sometimes a strong man's breast, was set against my mouth to deaden my cries, and with a hot breath always close to me, I struggled ineffectually in the dark, while I was fastened tight to the wall. "'And now,' said the suppressed voice with another oath, "'call out again, and I'll make short work of you.' faint and sick with the pain of my injured arm, bewildered by the surprise, and yet conscious how easily this threat could be put in execution, I desisted, and tried to ease my arm were it ever so little. But it was bound too tight for that. I felt as if, having been burnt before, it were now being boiled. The sudden exclusion of the night, and the substitution of black darkness in its place, warned me that the man had closed a shutter. After groping about a little, he found the flint and steel he wanted, and began to strike a light. I strained my sight upon the sparks that fell among the tinder, and upon which he breathed and breathed, match in hand, but I could only see his lips, and the blue point of the match, even those but fitfully. The tinder was damp, no wonder there, and one after another the sparks died out. The man was in no hurry, and struck again with the flint and steel. As the sparks fell thick and bright about him, I could see his hands, and touches of his face, and could make out that he was seated, and bending over the table, but nothing more. Presently I saw his blue lips again, breathing on the tinder, and then a flare of light flashed up, and showed me Orlick. Whom I had looked for, I don't know. I had not looked for him. Seeing him, I felt that I was in a dangerous strait indeed, and I kept my eyes upon him. He lighted the candle from the flaring match, with great deliberation, and dropped the match, and trod it out. Then he put the candle away from him on the table, so that he could see me, and sat with his arms folded on the table and looked at me. I made out that I was fastened to a stout perpendicular ladder a few inches from the wall, a fixture there, the means of ascent to the loft above. "'No,' said he, when we had surveyed one another for some time, "'I've got you.' "'Unbind me! Let me go!' "'Ah!' he returned. "'I'll let you go. I'll let you go to the moon. I'll let you go to the stars.' all in good time. Why have you lured me here? Don't you know? said he, with a deadly look. Why have you set upon me in the dark? Because I mean to do it all myself. 
one keeps a secret better than two. Oh, you enemy, you enemy! His enjoyment of the spectacle I furnished, as he sat with his arms folded on the table, shaking his head at me and hugging himself, had a malignity in it that made me tremble. As I watched him in silence, he put his hand into the corner at his side and took up a gun with a brass-bound stock. "'Do you know this?' said he, making as if he would take aim at me. "'Do you know where you saw it afore? Speak, Wolf!' "'Yes,' I answered. "'You cost me that place, you did. Speak!' "'What else could I do?' "'You did that, and that would be enough without more. How dared you come betwixt me and a young woman I liked?' "'When did I?' "'When didn't you? It was you as always give old Orlick a bad name to her. You gave it to yourself. You gained it for yourself. I could have done you no harm if you had done yourself none. You're a liar, and you'll take any pains and spend any money to drive me out of this country, will you? said he, repeating my words to Biddy in the last interview I had with her. No. I'll tell you a piece of information. It was never so well worth your while to get me out of this country as it is to-night. Ah, if it was all your money twenty times told to the last brass farden. As he shook his heavy hand at me, with his mouth snarling like a tiger's, I felt that it was true. What are you going to do to me? I'm a-going, said he bringing his fist down upon the table with a heavy blow, and rising as the blow fell, to give it greater force. "'I'm a-goin' to have your life!' He leaned forward, staring at me, slowly unclenched his hand, and drew it across his mouth, as if his mouth watered for me, and sat down again. "'You was always an old Orlick's way, since ever you was a child. You goes out of his way this present night.' He'll have no more on you. You're dead." I felt that I had come to the brink of my grave. For a moment I looked wildly round my trap for any chance of escape, but there was none. "'More than that,' said he, folding his arms on the table again, "'I won't have a rag of you. I won't have a bone of you left on earth. I'll put your body in the kiln. I'd carry two such to it on my shoulders, and let people suppose what they may of you, they shall never know nothing." My mind, with inconceivable rapidity, followed out all the consequences of such a death. Estella's father would believe I had deserted him, would be taken, would die accusing me. Even Herbert would doubt me, when he compared the letter I had left for him with the fact that I had called at Miss Havisham's gate for only a moment. Joe and Biddy would never know how sorry I had been that night. None would ever know what I had suffered, how true I had meant to be, what an agony I had passed through. The death close before me was terrible. But far more terrible than death was the dread of being misremembered after death. And so quick were my thoughts that I saw myself despised by unborn generations, Estella's children 
and their children, while the wretch's words were yet on his lips. "'Now, Wolf,' said he, "'afore I kill you, like any other beast, which is what I mean to do, and what I have tied you up for, I'll have a good look at you, and a good gold at you. Oh, you enemy!" It had passed through my thoughts to cry out for help again, though few could know better than I, the solitary nature of the spot, and the hopelessness of aid. But as he sat gloating over me, I was supported by a scornful detestation of him that sealed my lips. Above all things, I resolved that I would not entreat him, and that I would die making some last poor resistance to him. Softened as my thoughts of all the rest of men were, in that dire extremity, humbly beseeching pardon, as I did, of heaven, melted at heart as I was, by the thought that I had taken no farewell, and never, never now, could take farewell, of those who were dear to me, or could explain myself to them or ask for their compassion on my miserable errors. Still, if I could have killed him, even in dying, I would have done it." He had been drinking, and his eyes were red and bloodshot. Around his neck was slung a tin bottle, as I had often seen his meat and drink slung about him in other days. He brought the bottle to his lips, and took a fiery drink from it, and I smelt the strong spirits that I saw flash into his face. "'Wolf!' said he, folding his arms again. "'Old Orlix are going to tell you something. It was you as did for your shrew sister.' Again my mind, with its former inconceivable rapidity, had exhausted the whole subject of the attack upon my sister, her illness, and her death, before his slow and hesitating speech had formed these words. "'It was you, villain!' said I. I tell you, it was your doing. I tell you, it was done through you," he retorted, catching up the gun, and making a blow with the stock at the vacant air between us. I come upon her from behind, as I come upon you to-night. I give it her. I left her for dead. And if there had been a lime-kiln as nigh her, as there is now nigh you, she shouldn't have come to life again. But it warn't old Orlick as did it. It was you. You was favoured, and he was bullied and beat. Old Orlick, bullied and beat, eh? Now you pays for it. You done it. Now you pays for it. He drank again, and became more ferocious. I saw by his tilting of the bottle that there was no great quantity left in it. I distinctly understood that he was working himself up with its contents to make an end of me. I knew that every drop it held was a drop of my life. I knew that when I was changed into a part of the vapour that had crept towards me but a little while before, like my own warning ghost, he would do, as he had done in my sister's case, make all haste to the town, and be seen slouching about there drinking at the alehouses. My rapid mind pursued him to the town, made a picture of the street with him in it, and contrasted its lights and life with the lonely marsh and the white vapour creeping over it, into which I should have dissolved. It was not only that I could have summed up years and years and years while he said a dozen words, 
but that what he did say presented pictures to me, and not mere words. In the excited and exalted state of my brain, I could not think of a place without seeing it, or of persons without seeing them. It is impossible to overstate the vividness of these images, and yet I was so intent all the time upon him himself, who would not be intent on the tiger crouching to spring, that I knew of the slightest action of his fingers. When he had drunk this second time, he rose from the bench on which he sat, and pushed the table aside. Then he took up the candle, and shading it with his murderous hand, so as to throw its light on me, stood before me, looking at me, and enjoying the sight. Wolf, I'll tell you something more. It was old Orlick as you tumbled over on your stairs that night. I saw the staircase with its extinguished lamps. I saw the shadows of the heavy stair-rails thrown by the watchman's lantern on the wall. I saw the rooms that I was never to see again, here a door half open, there a door closed, all the articles of furniture around. And why was old Orlick there? I'll tell you something more, Wolf. You and her have pretty well hunted me out of this country so far as getting a easy living in it goes, and I took up with new companions, and new masters. Some of them writes my letters when I want some wrote, dear mind, writes my letters, Wolf. They writes fifty hands. They're not like sneaking you as writes but one. I've had a firm mind, and a firm will, to have your life since you was down here at your sister's burying. I ha'n't seen a way to get you safe, and I've looked after you to know your ins and outs. For, says old Orlick to himself, somehow or another, I'll have him. What? When I looks for you, I find your Uncle Provis, eh? Mill Pond Bank, and Chinks's Basin, and the old green copper rope walk, also clear and plain. Provis in his rooms, the signal whose use was over. Pretty Clara, the good motherly woman, old Bill Barley on his back, all drifting by, as on the swift stream of my life, fast running out to sea. You with that uncle, too. Why, I knowed you at Gargery's when you was so small a wolf, that I could have took your weasen betwixt this finger and thumb, and chucked you away dead. As I'd thought o' doin' odd times, when I see you loitin' amongst the pollards on a Sunday. And you hadn't found no uncles then. No, not you. But when old Orlick come for to hear, that your uncle Provis had most like wore the leg-iron what old Orlick had picked up, filed asunder on these meshes ever so many years ago, and what he kept by him, till he dropped your sister with it, like a bullock, as it means to drop you. Hey! When he come for to hear that! Hey! In his savage taunting, he flared the candle so close at me, that I turned my face aside, to save it from the flame. Ha ha! he cried, laughing after doing it again. The burnt child dreads the fire. Old Orlick knowed you was burnt. Old Orlick knowed you were smuggling your Uncle Provis away. Old Orlick's a match for you, and knowed you'd come to-night. 
Now I'll tell you something more, Wolf, and this ends it. There's them that's as good a match for your Uncle Provis as old Orlick has been for you. Let him wear them when he's lost his nevy. Let him wear them when no man can't find a rag of his dear relation's clothes, nor yet a bone of his body. There's them that can't, and that won't, have Magwitch. Yes, I know the name. Alive in the same land with them, and that's had such sure information of him when he was alive in another land, as that he couldn't and shouldn't leave it unbeknown and put them in danger. Perhaps it's them that writes fifty hands, and that's not like sneaking you as writes but one. Where, Compayson, Magwitch, and the gallows? He flared the candle at me again, smoking my face and hair, and for an instant blinding me, and turned his powerful back as he replaced the light on the table. I had thought a prayer, and had been with Joe and Biddy and Herbert, before he turned towards me again. There was a clear space of a few feet between the table and the opposite wall. Within this space he now slouched backwards and forwards. His great strength seemed to sit stronger upon him than ever before, as he did this with his hands hanging loose and heavy at his sides, and with his eyes scowling at me. I had no grain of hope left. Wild as my inward hurry was, and wonderful the force of the pictures that rushed by me instead of thoughts, I could yet clearly understand that unless he had resolved that I was within a few moments of surely perishing out of all human knowledge, he would never have told me what he had told. Of a sudden he stopped, took the cork out of his bottle, and tossed it away. Light as it was, I heard it fall like a plummet. He swallowed slowly, tilting up the bottle by little and little, and now he looked at me no more. The last few drops of liquor he poured into the palm of his hand, and licked up. Then, with a sudden hurry of violence and swearing horribly, he threw the bottle from him, and stooped, and I saw in his hand a stone hammer with a long heavy handle. The resolution I had made did not desert me, for, without uttering one vain word of appeal to him, I shouted out with all my might, and struggled with all my might. It was only my head and my legs that I could move, but to that extent I struggled with all the force, until then unknown, that was within me. In the same instant I heard responsive shouts, saw figures, and a gleam of light dash in at the door, heard voices in tumult, and saw Orlick emerge from a struggle of men, as if it were tumbling water, clear the table at a leap, and fly out into the night. After a blank I found that I was lying unbound, on the floor, in the same place, with my head on someone's knee. My eyes were fixed on the ladder against the wall, when I came to myself, had opened on it before my mind saw it, and thus, as I recovered consciousness, I knew that I was in the place where I had lost it. Too indifferent at first, even to look round and ascertain who supported me, I was lying looking at the ladder, when there came between me and it a face, the face of Trab's boy. "'I think he's all right,' said Trab's boy, in a sober voice. "'But ain't he just pale, though?' At these words, the face of him who supported me looked over into mine, 
and I saw my supporter to be. "'Herbert! Great heaven!' "'Softly,' said Herbert. "'Gently, Handel. Don't be too eager.' "'And our old comrade start up,' I cried, as he do bent over me. "'Remember what he is going to assist us in,' said Herbert, "'and be calm.' The illusion made me spring up, though I dropped again from the pain in my arm. "'The time has not gone by, Herbert, has it? What night is it to-night? How long have I been here?' For I had a strange and strong misgiving that I had been lying there a long time, a day and a night, two days and nights more. "'The time has not gone by. It is still Monday night.' "'Thank God! And you have all to-morrow, Tuesday, to rest in,' said Herbert. "'But you can't help groaning, my dear Handel. What hurt have you got? Can you stand?' "'Yes, yes,' said I. "'I can walk. I have no hurt but in this throbbing arm.' They laid it bare, and did what they could. It was violently swollen and inflamed, and I could scarcely endure to have it touched. But they tore up their handkerchiefs, to make fresh bandages, and carefully replaced it in the sling, until we could get to the town, and obtain some cooling lotion to put upon it. In a little while we had shut the door of the dark and empty sluice-house, and were passing through the quarry on our way back. Trab's boy—Trab's overgrown young man, now—went before us with a lantern, which was the light I had seen come in at the door. But. The moon was a good two hours higher than when I had last seen the sky, and the night, though rainy, was much lighter. The white vapour of the kiln was passing from us as we went by, and, as I had thought a prayer before, I thought a thanksgiving now. Entreating Herbert to tell me how he had come to my rescue, which at first he had flatly refused to do, but had insisted on my remaining quiet, I learnt that I had, in my hurry, dropped the letter open in our chambers, where he, coming home to bring with him Startup, whom he had met in the street on his way to me, found it very soon after I was gone. Its tone made him uneasy, and the more so because of the inconsistency between it and the hasty letter I had left for him. His uneasiness increasing, instead of subsiding, after a quarter of an hour's consideration, he set off for the coach-office with Startup, who volunteered his company to make inquiry when the next coach went down. Finding that the afternoon coach was gone, and finding that his uneasiness grew into positive alarm as obstacles came in his way, he resolved to follow in a post-chase. So he and Startup arrived at the Blue Boar, fully expecting there to find me, or tidings of me, but, finding neither, went on to Miss Havisham's, where they lost me. Hereupon they went back to the hotel doubtless at about the time when I was hearing the popular local version of my own story, to refresh themselves, and to get someone to guide them out upon the marshes. Among the loungers, under the boar's archway, happened to be Trab's boy, true to his ancient habit of happening to be everywhere where he had no business, and Trab's boy had seen me passing from Miss Havisham's in the direction of my dining-place. Thus Trab's boy became their guide, and with him they went out to the sluice-house, though by the town-way to the marshes, which I had avoided. Now, as they went along, Herbert reflected that I might, after all, 
have been brought there on some genuine and serviceable errand, tending to Provis's safety, and, bethinking himself that in that case interruption must be mischievous, left his guide and start-up on the edge of the quarry, and went on by himself, and stole round the house two or three times, endeavouring to ascertain whether all was right within. As he could hear nothing, but indistinct sounds of one deep, rough voice, this was while my mind was so busy, he even at last began to doubt whether I was there, when suddenly I cried out loudly, and he answered the cries, and rushed in, closely followed by the other two. When I told Herbert what had passed within the house, he was for our immediately going before a magistrate in the town, late at night as it was, and getting out a warrant. But I had already considered that such a course, by detaining us there, or binding us to come back, might be fatal to Provis. There was no gain saying this difficulty, and we relinquished all thoughts of pursuing Orlick at that time. For the present, under the circumstances, we deemed it prudent to make rather light of the matter to Trabb's boy, who, I am convinced, would have been much affected by disappointment, if he had known that his intervention saved me from the lime-kiln. Not that Trabb's boy was of a malignant nature, but that he had too much spare vivacity, and it was in his constitution to want variety and excitement at anybody's expense. When we parted, I presented him with two guineas, which seemed to meet his views, and told him that I was very sorry ever to have had an ill opinion of him, which made no impression on him at all. Wednesday being so close upon us, we determined to go back to London that night, three in the post-chaise, the rather, as we should then be clear away before the night's adventure began to be talked of. Herbert got a large bottle of stuff for my arm, and by dint of having this stuff dropped over it all the night through, I was just able to bear its pain on the journey. It was daylight when we reached the temple, and I went at once to bed, and lay in bed all day. My terror! as I lay there, of falling ill, and being unfitted for to-morrow, was so besetting, that I wonder it did not disable me of itself. It would have done so, pretty surely, in conjunction with the mental wear and tear I had suffered, but for the unnatural strain upon me that to-morrow was. So anxiously looked forward to, charged with such consequences, its result so impenetrably hidden, though so near. No precaution could have been more obvious than our refraining from communication with him that day. Yet this again increased my restlessness. I started at every footstep and every sound, believing that he was discovered and taken, and this was the messenger to tell me so. I persuaded myself that I knew he was taken, that there was something more upon my mind than a fear or a presentiment, that the fact had occurred, and I had a mysterious knowledge of it. As the day wore on, and no ill news came, as the day closed in and darkness fell, my overshadowing dread of being disabled by illness before to-morrow morning altogether mastered me. My burning arm throbbed, and my burning head throbbed, and I fancied I was beginning to wander. I counted up to high numbers, to make sure of myself, and repeated passages that I knew in prose and verse. It happened sometimes, that in the mere escape of a fatigued mind, I dozed for some moments, or forgot. Then I would say to myself with a start, "'Now it has come. I am turning delirious.' They kept me very quiet all day, and kept my arm constantly dressed, and gave me cooling drinks. Whenever I fell asleep, 
I awoke with the notion I had had in the sluice-house, that a long time had elapsed, and the opportunity to save him was gone. About midnight I got out of bed, and went to Herbert, with the conviction that I had been asleep for four-and-twenty hours, and that Wednesday was past. It was the last self-exhausting effort of my fretfulness, for after that I slept soundly. Wednesday morning was dawning, when I looked out of window. The winking lights upon the bridges were already pale. The coming sun was like a marsh of fire on the horizon. The river, still dark and mysterious, was spanned by bridges that were turning coldly grey, with here and there at top a warm touch from the burning in the sky. As I looked along the clustered roofs, with church towers and spires shooting into the unusually clear air, the sun rose up, and a veil seemed to be drawn from the river, and millions of sparkles burst out upon its waters. From me, too, a veil seemed to be drawn, and I felt strong and well. Herbert lay asleep in his bed, and our old fellow-student lay asleep on the sofa. I could not dress myself without help, but I made up the fire, which was still burning, and got some coffee ready for them. In good time they too started up strong and well, and we admitted the sharp morning air at the windows, and looked at the tide that was still flowing towards us. "'When it turns at nine o'clock,' said Herbert cheerfully, "'look out for us, and stand ready, you over there at Mill Pond Bank.'" End of chapter 53Chapter fifty four of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter fifty four. It was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. We had our pea coats with us and I took a bag. Of all my worldly possessions, I took no more than the few necessaries that filled the bag. Where I might go, what I might do, or when I might return, were questions utterly unknown to me. Nor did I vex my mind with them, for it was wholly set on Provis's safety. I only wondered for the passing moment, as I stopped at the door and looked back, under what altered circumstances I should next see those rooms if ever. We loitered down to the temple stairs, and stood loitering there, as if we were not quite decided to go upon the water at all. Of course I had taken care that the boat should be ready, and everything in order. After a little show of indecision, which there were none to see, but the two or three amphibious creatures belonging to our temple stairs, we went on board, and cast off. Herbert in the bow, I steering. It was then about high water, half-past eight. Our plan was this. The tide, beginning to run down at nine, and being with us until three, we intended still to creep on after it had turned, and row against it until dark. We should then be well in those long reaches below Gravesend, between Kent and Essex, where the river is broad and solitary, where the waterside inhabitants are very few, and where lone public houses are scattered here and there of which we could choose one for a resting-place. There we meant to lie by all night. The steamer for Hamburg, and the steamer for Rotterdam, would start from London at about nine on Thursday morning. 
we should know at what time to expect them, according to where we were, and would hail the first, so that if by any accident we were not taken aboard, we should have another chance. We knew the distinguishing marks of each vessel. The relief of being at last engaged in the execution of the purpose was so great to me, that I felt it difficult to realise the condition in which I had been a few hours before. The crisp air, the sunlight, the movement on the river, and the moving river itself, the road that ran with us, seeming to sympathise with us, animate us, and encourage us on, freshened me with new hope. I felt mortified to be of so little use in the boat, but there were few better oarsmen than my two friends, and they rowed with a steady stroke that was to last all day. At that time the steam-traffic on the Thames was far below its present extent, and watermen's boats were far more numerous. Of barges, sailing colliers, and coasting traders, there were perhaps as many as now. But of steamships, great and small, not a tithe or a twentieth part so many. Early as it was, there were plenty of scullers going here and there that morning, and plenty of barges dropping down with the tide. The navigation of the river between bridges in an open boat was a much easier and commoner matter in those days than it is in these, and we went ahead among many skiffs and wherries, briskly. Old London Bridge was soon passed, and old Billingsgate Market with its oyster-boats and Dutchmen, and the White Tower and Traitor's Gate, and we were in among the tiers of shipping. Here were the Leith, Aberdeen, and Glasgow steamers, loading and unloading goods, and looking immensely high out of the water as we passed alongside. Here were colliers by the score and score, with the coal-whippers plunging off stages on deck as counterweights to measures of coal swinging up, which were then rattled over the side into barges. Here, at her moorings, was to-morrow's steamer for Rotterdam, of which we took good notice, and here to-morrow's for Hamburg, under whose bowsprit we crossed. And now, I, sitting in the stern, could see with a faster-beating heart Mill Pond Bank and Mill Pond Stairs. "'Is he there?' said Herbert. "'Not yet.' "'Right. He was not to come down till he saw us. Can you see his signal?' "'Not well from here. But I think I see it. Now I see him. Pull both. Easy, Herbert. Oars.' We touched the stairs lightly for a single moment, and he was on board, and we were off again. He had a boat-cloak with him, and a black canvas bag, and he looked as like a river-pilot as my heart could have wished. "'Dear boy,' he said, putting his arm on my shoulder, as he took his seat, "'faithful dear boy, well done. Thank ye, thank ye.' Again among the tiers of shipping, in and out, avoiding rusty chain-cables, frayed hempen houses, and bobbing boys, sinking for the moment floating broken baskets, scattering floating chips of wood and shaving, cleaving floating scum of coal, in and out, under the figurehead of the John of Sunderland, making a speech to the winds, as is done by many Johns, and the Betsy of Yarmouth, with a firm formality of bosom, and her knobby eyes starting two inches out of her head, in and out, Hammers going in shipbuilders' yards, saws going at timber, clashing engines going at things unknown, pumps going in leaky ships, capstans going, ships going out to sea, 
and unintelligible sea-creatures roaring curses over the bulwarks at respondent lightermen, in and out, out at last upon the clearer river, where the ship's boys might take their fenders in, no longer fishing in troubled waters with them over the side, and where the festooned sails might fly out to the wind. At the stairs, where we had taken him aboard, and ever since, I had looked warily for any token of our being suspected. I had seen none. We certainly had not been, and at that time as certainly we were not, either attended or followed by any boat. If we had been waited on by any boat, I should have run in to shore, and have obliged her to go on, or to make her purpose evident. But we held our own, without any appearance of molestation. He had his boat-cloak on him, and looked, as I have said, a natural part of the scene. It was remarkable, but perhaps the wretched life he had led accounted for it, that he was the least anxious of any of us. He was not indifferent, for he told me that he hoped to live to see his gentleman one of the best of gentlemen in a foreign country. He was not disposed to be passive or resigned, as I understood it, but he had no notion of meeting danger half-way. When it came upon him, he confronted it, but it must come before he troubled himself. "'If you knowed, dear boy,' he said to me, "'what it is to sit here, along her, my dear boy, and have my smoke, arter having been day by day betwixt four walls, you'd envy me, but you don't know what it is.' "'I think I know the delights of freedom,' I answered. "'Ah!' said he, shaking his head gravely. "'But you don't know it equal to me. "'You must have been under lock and key, dear boy, "'to know it equal to me. "'But I ain't a-going to be low.' "'It occurred to me as inconsistent, "'that for any mastering idea "'he should have endangered his freedom and even his life. "'But I reflected that perhaps freedom without danger "'was too much apart from all the habit of his existence "'to be to him what it would be to another man.' I was not far out, since he said, after smoking a little, "'You see, dear boy, when I was over yonder, t'other side the world, I was always a-looking to this side, and it come flat to be there, for all I was a-growing rich. Everybody knowed Magwitch, and Magwitch could come, and Magwitch could go, and nobody's head would be troubled about him. They ain't so easy concerning me here, dear boy. Wouldn't be, leastwise, if they knowed where I was. If all goes well, said I, you'll be perfectly free and safe again within a few hours. Well, he returned, drawing a long breath, I hope so. And think so? He dipped his hand in the water over the boat's gunwale and said, smiling with that softened air upon him, which was not new to me, "'Aye, I, I suppose I think so, dear boy. We'd be puzzled to be more quiet and easy-going than we are at present. But it's a-flowing so soft and pleasant through the water, perhaps as makes me think it. I was a-thinking through my smoke just then, that we can no more see the bottom of the next few hours and we can see to the bottom of this river what I catch as hold of. Nor yet we can't no more hold their tide than I can hold this.' 
and it's run through my fingers and gone, you see, holding up his dripping hand. But your face, I should think you were a little despondent, said I. Not a bit on it, dear boy. It comes a flowing on so quiet, and of that there rippling at the boat's head, making a sort of a Sunday tune. Maybe I'm growing a trifle old, besides. He put his pipe back in his mouth, with an undisturbed expression of face, and sat as composed and contented as if we were already out of England. Yet he was as submissive to a word of advice as if he had been in constant terror, for, when we ran ashore to get some bottles of beer into the boat, and he was stepping out, I hinted that I thought he would be safest where he was, and he said, "'Do you, dear boy?' and quietly sat down again. The air felt cold upon the river, but it was a bright day, and the sunshine was very cheering. The tide ran strong. I took care to lose none of it, and our steady stroke carried us on thoroughly well. By imperceptible degrees, as the tide ran out, we lost more and more of the nearer woods and hills, and dropped lower and lower between the muddy banks, but the tide was yet with us when we were off Gravesend. As our charge was wrapped in his cloak, I purposely passed within a boat or two's length of the floating custom-house, and so out to catch the stream, alongside of two emigrant ships, and under the bows of a large transport with troops on the forecastle looking down at us and soon the tide began to slacken, and the craft lying at anchor to swing, and presently they had all swung round, and the ships that were taking advantage of the new tide to get up to the pool began to crowd upon us in a fleet, and we kept under the shore, as much out of the strength of the tide now as we could, standing carefully off from low shallows and mud-banks. Our oarsmen were so fresh, by dint of having occasionally let her drive with the tide for a minute or two, that a quarter of an hour's rest proved full as much as they wanted. We got ashore among some slippery stones while we ate and drank what we had with us, and looked about. It was like my own marsh country, flat and monotonous, and with a dim horizon, while the winding river turned and turned, and the great floating buoys upon it turned and turned, and everything else seemed stranded and still. For now, the last of the fleet of ships was round the last low point we had headed, and the last green barge, straw-laden, with a brown sail, had followed, and some ballast lighters, shaped like a child's first rude imitation of a boat, lay low in the mud, and a little squat shoal lighthouse on open piles stood crippled in the mud on stilts and crutches and slimy stakes stuck out of the mud, and slimy stones stuck out of the mud, and red landmarks and tide-marks stuck out of the mud, and an old landing-stage, and an old roofless building, slipped into the mud, and all about us was stagnation and mud. We pushed off again, and made what way we could. It was much harder work now, but Herbert and Startup persevered, and rowed, and rowed, and rowed, until the sun went down. By that time the river had lifted us a little, so that we could see above the bank. There was the red sun, on the low level of the shore in a purple haze, fast deepening into black, and there was the solitary flat marsh, and far away there were the rising grounds, between which and us there seemed to be no life, 
save here and there in the foreground, a melancholy gull. As the night was fast falling, and as the moon, being past the full, would not rise early, we held a little council, a short one, for clearly our course was to lie by at the first lonely tavern we could find. So they plied their oars once more, and I looked out for anything like a house. Thus we held on, speaking little, for four or five dull miles. It was very cold, and a collier coming by us, with her galley-fire smoking and flaring, looked like a comfortable home. The night was as dark by this time as it would be until morning, and what light we had seemed to come more from the river than the sky, as the oars in their dipping struck at a few reflected stars. At this dismal time we were evidently all possessed by the idea that we were followed. As the tide made, it flapped heavily at irregular intervals against the shore, and whenever such a sound came, one or other of us was sure to start and look in that direction. Here and there, the set of the current had worn down the bank into a little creek, and we were all suspicious of such places, and eyed them nervously. Sometimes, "'What was that ripple?' one of us would say, in a low voice, or another, "'Is that a boat yonder?' And afterwards we would fall into a dead silence, and I would sit impatiently thinking with what an unusual amount of noise the oars worked in the thowels. At length we descried a light and a roof, and presently afterwards ran alongside a little causeway made of stones that had been picked up hard by. Leaving the rest in the boat, I stepped ashore, and found the light to be in a window of a public-house. It was a dirty place enough, and I dare say not unknown to smuggling adventurers, but there was a good fire in the kitchen, and there were eggs and bacon to eat, and various liquors to drink. Also, there were two double-bedded rooms. "'Such as they were,' the landlord said. No other company was in the house, and the landlord, his wife, and a grizzled male creature, the Jack of the little causeway, who was as slimy and smeary as if he had been low-water mark too. With this assistant I went down to the boat again, and we all came ashore, and brought out the oars and rudder and boat-hook and all else, and hauled her up for the night. We made a very good meal by the kitchen fire, and then apportioned the bedrooms. Herbert and Startop were to accompany one, I and our charge the other. We found the air as carefully excluded from both, as if air were fatal to life, and there were more dirty clothes and bandboxes under the beds than I should have thought the family possessed. But we considered ourselves well off, notwithstanding, for a more solitary place we could not have found. While we were comforting ourselves by the fire after our meal, the Jack, who was sitting in a corner, and who had a bloated pair of shoes on, which he had exhibited while we were eating our eggs and bacon, as interesting relics that he had taken a few days ago from the feet of a drowned seaman washed ashore, asked me if we had seen a four-oared galley going up with the tide. When I told him no, he said she must have gone down then, and yet she took up too, when she left there. "'They must have thought better, aunt, for some reason or another,' said the Jack, "'and gone down.' "'A four-oared galley, did you say?' said I. "'A four,' said the Jack, "'and two sitters. "'Did they come ashore here?' "'They put in 
with a stone two-gallon jar for some beer. I'd have been glad to poison the beer myself, said the Jack, or put some rattling fig in it. Why? I know why, said the Jack. He spoke in a slushy voice, as if much mud had washed into his throat. He thinks, said the landlord, a weakly meditative man with a pale eye, who seemed to rely greatly on his Jack. He thinks they was what they wasn't. I knows what I thinks, observed the Jack. You thinks custom-house, Jack, said the landlord. I do, said the Jack. Then you're wrong, Jack. Am I? In the infinite meaning of his reply, and his boundless confidence in his views, the Jack took one of his bloated shoes off, looked into it, knocked a few stones out of it on the kitchen floor, and put it on again. He did this with the air of a Jack who was so right that he could afford to do anything. "'Why, what do you make out that they done with their buttons, then, Jack?' asked the landlord, vacillating weakly. "'Jan with their buttons,' returned the Jack. "'Chucked him overboard, swallowed him, sold him to come up small salad, Jan with their buttons.' "'Don't be cheeky, Jack.' remonstrated the landlord, in a melancholy and pathetic way. "'A custom-house officer knows what to do with his buttons,' said the Jack, repeating the obnoxious word with the greatest contempt. "'When they comes betwixt him and his own light, a four and two sitters don't go hanging and overing, up with one tide and down with another, and both with and against another, without there being custom-house at the bottom of it. Saying which, he went out in disdain, and the landlord, having no one to reply upon, found it impracticable to pursue the subject. This dialogue made us all uneasy, and me very uneasy. A dismal wind was muttering round the house, the tide was flapping at the shore, and I had a feeling that we were caged and threatened. A four-oared galley, hovering about in so unusual a way as to attract this notice, was an ugly circumstance that I could not get rid of. When I had induced Provis to go up to bed, I went outside with my two companions. Startup, by this time, knew the state of the case, and held another counsel. Whether we should remain at the house until near the steamer's time, which would be about one in the afternoon, or whether we should put off early in the morning, was the question we discussed. On the whole we deemed it the better course to lie where we were, until within an hour or so of the steamer's time, and then get out in her track and drift easily with the tide. Having settled to do this, we returned into the house and went to bed. I lay down with the greater part of my clothes on, and slept well for a few hours. When I awoke, the wind had risen, and the sign of the house, the ship, was creaking and banging about, with noises that startled me. Rising softly, for my charge lay fast asleep, 
I looked out of the window. It commanded the causeway, where we had hauled up our boat, and, as my eyes adapted themselves to the light of the clouded moon, I saw two men looking into her. They passed by under the window, looking at nothing else, and they did not go down to the landing-place, which I could discern to be empty, but struck across the marsh in the direction of the Nore. My first impulse was to call up Herbert, and show him the two men going away. But, reflecting before I got into his room, which was at the back of the house and adjoined mine, that he and Startup had had a harder day than I, and were fatigued, I forbore. Going back to my window, I could see the two men moving over the marsh. In that light, however, I soon lost them, and feeling very cold, lay down to think of the matter, and fell asleep again. We were up early. As we walked to and fro, all four together, before breakfast, I deemed it right to recount what I had seen. Again our charge was the least anxious of the party. It was very likely that the men belonged to the custom-house, he said quietly, and that they had no thought of us. I tried to persuade myself that it was so, as indeed it might easily be. However, I proposed that he and I should walk away together to a distant point we could see, and that the boat should take us aboard there, or as near there as might prove feasible, at about noon. This being considered a good precaution, soon after breakfast he and I set forth without saying anything at the tavern. He smoked his pipe as we went along, and sometimes stopped to clap me on the shoulder. One would have supposed that it was I who was in danger, not he, and that he was reassuring me. We spoke very little. As we approached the point, I begged him to remain in a sheltered place, while I went on to reconnoitre, for it was towards it that the men had passed in the night. He complied, and I went on alone. There was no boat off the point, nor any boat drawn up anywhere near it, nor were there any signs of the men having embarked there. But, to be sure, the tide was high, and there might have been some footprints under water. When he looked out from his shelter in the distance, and saw that I waved my hat to him to come up, he rejoined me, and there we waited, sometimes lying on the bank, wrapped in our coats, and sometimes moving about to warm ourselves, until we saw our boat coming round. We got aboard easily, and rowed out into the track of the steamer. By that time it wanted but ten minutes of one o'clock, and we began to look out for her smoke. But it was half-past one before we saw her smoke, and soon afterwards we saw behind it the smoke of another steamer. As they were coming on at full speed, we got the two bags ready, and took that opportunity of saying good-bye to Herbert and Startup. We had all shaken hands cordially, and neither Herbert's eyes nor mine were quite dry, when I saw a four-oared galley shoot out from under the bank, but a little way ahead of us, and row out into the same track. A stretch of shore had been as yet between us, and the steamer's smoke, by reason of the bend and wind of the river, but now she was visible, coming head on. I called to Herbert and Startup to keep before the tide, that she might see us lying by for her, and I adjured Provis to sit quite still, wrapped in his cloak. He answered cheerily, "'Trust to me, dear boy,' and sat like a statue. Meantime the galley, which was very skilfully handled, had crossed us, let us come up with her, and fallen alongside. 
leaving just room enough for the play of the oars, she kept alongside, drifting when we drifted, and pulling a stroke or two when we pulled. Of the two sitters, one held the rudder-lines, and looked at us attentively, as did all the rowers. The other sitter was wrapped up, much as Provis was, and seemed to shrink, and whisper some instruction to the steerer as he looked at us. Not a word was spoken in either boat. Startup could make out, after a few minutes, which steamer was first, and gave me the word, Hamburg, in a low voice, as we sat face to face. She was nearing us very fast, and the beating of her pedals grew louder and louder. I felt as if her shadow were absolutely upon us, when the galley hailed us. I answered. "'You have a return transport there,' said the man who held the lines. "'That's the man, wrapped in the cloak. His name is Abel Magwitch, otherwise Provis. I apprehend that man, and call upon him to surrender, and you to assist.' At the same moment, without giving any audible direction to his crew, he ran the galley abroad of us. They had pulled one sudden stroke ahead, had got their oars in, had run athwart us, and were holding on to our gunwale before we knew what they were doing. This caused great confusion on board the steamer, and I heard them calling to us, and heard the order given to stop the paddles, and heard them stop, but felt her driving down upon us irresistibly. In the same moment I saw the steersman of the galley lay his hand on his prisoner's shoulder, and saw that both boats were swinging round with the force of the tide, and saw that all hands on board the steamer were running forward quite frantically. Still in the same moment I saw the prisoner start up, lean across his captor, and pull the cloak from the neck of the shrinking sitter in the galley. Still in the same moment I saw that the face disclosed was the face of the other convict of long ago. Still in the same moment I saw the face tilt backward, with white terror on it, that I shall never forget, and hear a great cry on board the steamer, and a loud splash in the water, and felt the boat sink from under me. It was but for an instant that I seemed to struggle with a thousand mill-weirs, and a thousand flashes of light. That instant passed, I was taken on board the galley. Herbert was there, and Startup was there, but our boat was gone, and the two convicts were gone. What with the cries aboard the steamer, and the furious blowing off of her steam, and her driving on, and our driving on, I could not at first distinguish sky from water, or shore from shore. But the crew of the galley righted her with great speed, and, pulling certain swift strong strokes ahead, lay upon their oars, every man looking silently and eagerly at the water astern. Presently a dark object was seen in it, bearing towards us on the tide. No man spoke, but the steersman held up his hand, and all softly backed water, and kept the boat straight and true before it. As it came nearer, I saw it to be Magwitch, swimming, but not swimming freely. He was taken on board, and instantly manacled at the wrists and ankles. The galley was kept steady, and the silent, eager lookout at the water was resumed. But the Rotterdam steamer now came up, and apparently not understanding what had happened, came on at speed. By the time she had been hailed and stopped, both steamers were drifting away from us and we were rising and falling in a troubled wake of water. The lookout was kept, long after all was still again, and the two steamers were gone. But everybody knew that it was hopeless now. At length we gave it up, and pulled under the shore towards the tavern we had lately left, 
where we were received with no little surprise. Here I was able to get some comforts for Magwitch, Provis no longer, who had received some very severe injury in the chest, and a deep cut in the head. He told me that he believed himself to have gone under the keel of the steamer, and to have been struck on the head in rising. The injury to his chest, which rendered his breathing extremely painful, he thought he had received against the side of the galley. He added that he did not pretend to say what he might or might not have done to Compeyson, but that in the moment of his laying his hand on his cloak to identify him, that villain had staggered up and staggered back, and they had both gone overboard together, when the sudden wrenching of him, Magwitch, out of our boat, and the endeavour of his captain to keep him in it, had capsized us. He told me in a whisper that they had gone down, fiercely locked in each other's arms, and that there had been a struggle under water, and that he had disengaged himself, struck out, and swum away. I never had any reason to doubt the exact truth of what he thus told me. The officer who steered the galley gave the same account of their going overboard. When I asked this officer's permission to change the prisoner's wet clothes, by purchasing any spare garments I could get at the public-house, he gave it readily, merely observing that he must take charge of everything his prisoner had about him. So the pocket-book, which had once been in my hands, passed into the officer's. He further gave me leave to accompany the prisoner to London, but declined to accord that grace to my two friends. The jack at the ship was instructed where the drowned man had gone down, and undertook to search for the body in the places where it was likeliest to come ashore. His interest in its recovery seemed to me to be much heightened when he heard that it had stockings on. Probably it took about a dozen drowned men to fit him out completely, and that may have been the reason why the different articles of his dress were in various stages of decay. We remained at the public-house until the tide turned, and then Magwitch was carried down to the galley and put on board. Herbert and Startup were to get to London by land as soon as they could. We had a doleful parting, and when I took my place by Magwitch's side, I felt that that was my place henceforth, while he lived. For now my repugnance to him had all melted away, and in the hunted, wounded, shackled creature who held my hand in his, I only saw a man who had meant to be my benefactor, and who had felt affectionately, grateful, and generously towards me, with great constancy, through a series of years. I only saw in him a much better man than I had been to Joe. His breathing became more difficult and painful, as the night drew on, and often he could not repress a groan. I tried to rest him on the arm I could use, in any easy position, but it was dreadful to think that I could not be sorry at heart for his being badly hurt, since it was unquestionably best that he should die. That there were, still living, people enough who were able and willing to identify him, I could not doubt. That he would be leniently treated, I could not hope. He who had been presented in the worst light at his trial, who had since broken prison, and had been tried again, who had returned from transportation under a life sentence, and who had occasioned the death of the man who was the cause of his arrest. As we returned towards the setting sun we had yesterday left behind us, and as the stream of our hopes seemed all running back, I told him how grieved I was to think that he had come home for my sake. "'Dear boy,' 
he answered. "'I'm quite content to take my chance. I've seen my boy, and he can be a gentleman without me.' No. I had thought about that, while we had been there side by side. No. Apart from any inclinations of my own, I understood Wemmick's hint now. I foresaw that, being convicted, his possessions would be forfeited to the Crown. "'Looky here, dear boy,' said he. "'It's best as a gentleman should not be known to belong to me now. Only come to see me, as if you come by chance, along a Wemmick. Sit where I can see you, when I am swore to, for the last of many times, and I don't ask no more.' "'I will never stir from your side,' said I. When I am suffered to be near you, please God, I will be as true to you as you have been to me." I felt his hand tremble as it held mine, and he turned his face away as he lay in the bottom of the boat, and I heard that old sound in his throat, softened now, like all the rest of him. It was a good thing that he had touched this point, for it put into my mind what I might not otherwise have thought of until too late, that he need never know how his hopes of enriching me had perished. End of chapter 54「Chapter 55 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 55 He was taken to the police court next day, and would have been immediately committed for trial, but that it was necessary to send down for an old officer of the prison-ship, from which he had once escaped, to speak to his identity. Nobody doubted it, but Compeyson, who had meant to depose to it, was tumbling on the tides, dead and it happened that there was not at that time any prison officer in London who could give the required evidence. I had gone direct to Mr. Jaggers at his private house, on my arrival overnight, to retain his assistance, and Mr. Jaggers, on the prisoner's behalf, would admit nothing. It was the sole resource, for he told me that the case must be over in five minutes when the witness was there, and that no power on earth could prevent its going against us. I imparted to Mr. Jaggers my design of keeping him in ignorance of the fate of his wealth. Mr. Jaggers was querulous and angry with me, for having let it slip through my fingers, and said we must memorialise by and by, and try at all events for some of it. But he did not conceal from me that although there might be many cases in which the forfeiture would not be exacted, there were no circumstances in this case to make it one of them. I understood that very well. I was not related to the outlaw, or connected with him by any recognisable tie. He had put his hand to no writing or settlement in my favour, before his apprehension, and to do so now would be idle. I had no claim, and I finally resolved, and ever afterwards abided by the resolution, that my heart should never be sickened with the hopeless task of attempting to establish one. There appeared to be reason for supposing that the drowned informer had hoped for a reward out of this forfeiture, 
and had obtained some accurate knowledge of Magwitch's affairs. When his body was found, many miles from the scene of his death, and so horribly disfigured that he was only recognisable by the contents of his pockets, notes were still legible, folded in a case he carried. Among these were the name of a banking-house in New South Wales, where a sum of money was, and the designation of certain lands of considerable value. Both these heads of information were in a list that Magwitch, while in prison, gave to Mr. Jaggers, of the possessions he supposed I should inherit. His ignorance, poor fellow, at last served him. He never mistrusted but that my inheritance was quite safe, with Mr. Jaggers's aid. After three days' delay, during which the Crown prosecution stood over the production of the witness from the prison-ship, the witness came, and completed the easy case. He was committed to take his trial at the next sessions, which would come on in a month. It was at this dark time of my life, that Herbert returned home one evening, a good deal cast down, and said, "'My dear Handel, I fear I shall soon have to leave you.' His partner, having prepared me for that, I was less surprised than he thought. "'We shall lose a fine opportunity, if I put off going to Cairo. And I'm very much afraid I must go, Handel, when you most need me.' Herbert, I shall always need you, because I shall always love you. But my need is no greater now than at another time. You will be so lonely. I have not leisure to think of that," said I. You know that I am always with him, to the full extent of the time allowed, and that I should be with him all day long if I could. And when I come away from him, you know that my thoughts are with him. The dreadful condition to which he was brought was so appalling to both of us that we could not refer to it in plainer words. "'My dear fellow,' said Herbert, "'let the near prospect of our separation—for it is very near—be my justification for troubling you about yourself. Have you thought of your future?' "'No, for I have been afraid to think of any future. But yours cannot be dismissed. Indeed, my dear, dear Handel, it must not be dismissed.' I wish you would enter on it now, as far as a few friendly words go with me." "'I will,' said I. "'In this branch-house of ours, Handel, we must have a—I saw that his delicacy was avoiding the right word, so I said—a clerk. A clerk. And I hope it is not at all unlikely that he may expand, as a clerk of your acquaintance has expanded, into a partner. Now, Handel. In short, my dear boy, will you come to me?" There was something charmingly cordial and engaging in the manner in which, after saying, "'Now, Handel,' as if it were the grave beginning of a portentous business exordium, he had suddenly given up that tone, stretched out his honest hand, and spoke like a schoolboy. "'Clara and I have talked about it again and again,' Herbert pursued, "'and the dear little thing begged me only this evening, with tears in her eyes, to say to you that if you will live with us, when we come together, she will do her best to make you happy, and to convince her husband's friend that he is her friend too. We should get on so well, Handel." I thanked her heartily, and I thanked him heartily, but said I could not yet make sure of joining him, as he so kindly offered. Firstly, my mind was too preoccupied 
to be able to take in the subject clearly. Secondly, yes, secondly, there was a vague something lingering in my thoughts that will come out very near the end of this slight narrative. But if you thought, Herbert, that you could, without doing any injury to your business, leave the question open for a little while? For any while, cried Herbert, six months, a year? Not so long as that, said I. Two or three months at most. Herbert was highly delighted when we shook hands on this arrangement, and said he could now take courage to tell me that he believed he must go away at the end of the week. And Clara? said I. The dear little thing, returned Herbert, holds dutifully to her father, as long as he lasts, but he won't last long. Mrs. Wimple confides to me that he is certainly going. Not to say an unfeeling thing, said I, he cannot do better than go. I am afraid that must be admitted, said Herbert, and then I shall come back for the dear little thing, and the dear little thing and I will walk quietly into the nearest church. Remember, the blessed darling comes of no family, my dear Handel, and never looked into the red book, and hasn't a notion about her grandpapa. What a fortune for the son of my mother! On the Saturday in that same week I took my leave of Herbert, full of bright hope, but sad and sorry to leave me, as he sat on one of the seaport mail-coaches. I went into a coffee-house to write a little note to Clara, telling her he had gone off, sending his love to her over and over again, and then went to my lonely home, if it deserved the name, for it was now no home to me, and I had no home anywhere. On the stairs I encountered Wemmick, who was coming down after an unsuccessful application of his knuckles to my door. I had not seen him alone since the disastrous issue of the attempted flight, and he had come in his private and personal capacity to say a few words of explanation in reference to that failure. "'The late compassion,' said Wemmick, "'had by little and little got to the bottom of half of the regular business now transacted, and it was from the talk of some of his people in trouble, some of his people being always in trouble, that I heard what I did. I kept my ears open, seeming to have them shut, until I heard that he was absent, and I thought that would be the best time for making the attempt. I can only suppose now that it was a part of his policy, as a very clever man, habitually to deceive his own instruments. You don't blame me, I hope, Mr. Pip. I'm sure I tried to serve you with all my heart. I am as sure of that, Wemmick, as you can be, and I thank you most earnestly for all your interest and friendship. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a bad job, said Wemmick, scratching his head, and I assure you, I haven't been so cut up for a long time. What I look at is the sacrifice of so much portable property. Oh, dear me! What I think of, Wemmick, is the poor owner of the property. Yes, to be sure, said Wemmick. Of course, there can be no objection to your being sorry for him, and I'd put down a five-pound note myself to get him out of it. But what I look at is this. The late compassion, having been beforehand with him in intelligence of his return, and being so determined to bring him to book, I do not think he could have been saved. Whereas the portable property certainly could have been saved. 
That's the difference between the property and the owner, don't you see?" I invited Wemmick to come upstairs, and refresh himself with a glass of grog, before walking to Walworth. He accepted the invitation. While he was drinking his moderate allowance, he said, with nothing leading up to it, and after having appeared rather fidgety, "'What do you think of my meaning to take holiday on Monday, Mr. Pip?' "'Why, I suppose you have not done such a thing these twelve months?' "'These twelve years, more likely,' said Wemmick. "'Yes. I'm going to take holiday. More than that, I'm going to take a walk. More than that, I'm going to ask you to take a walk with me.' I was about to excuse myself, as being but a bad companion just then, when Wemmick anticipated me. "'I know your engagements,' said he and I know you're out of sorts, Mr. Pip, but if you could oblige me, I should take it as a kindness. It ain't a long walk, and it's an early one, so it might occupy you, including breakfast on the walk, from eight to twelve. Couldn't you stretch a point and manage it?" He had done so much for me at various times, that this was very little to do for him. I said I could manage it, would manage it and he was so very much pleased by my acquiescence that I was pleased too. At his particular request, I appointed to call for him at the castle at half-past eight on Monday morning, and so we parted for the time. Punctual to my appointment, I rang at the castle gate on the Monday morning, and was received by Wemmick himself, who struck me as looking tighter than usual, and having a sleeker hat on. Within. There were two glasses of rum and milk prepared, and two biscuits. The aged must have been stirring with the lark, for, glancing into the perspective of his bedroom, I observed that his bed was empty. When we had fortified ourselves with the rum and milk and biscuits, and were going out for the walk, with that training preparation on us, I was considerably surprised to see Wemmick take up a fishing-rod, and put it over his shoulder. "'Why, we're not going fishing,' said I. "'No,' returned Wemmick, "'but I like to walk with one.' I thought this odd. However, I said nothing, and we set off. We went towards Camberwell Green, and when we were thereabouts, Wemmick said suddenly, "Hello, Here's a church.' There was nothing very surprising in that, but again I was rather surprised when he said, as if he were animated by a brilliant idea, "'Let's go in.' We went in. Wemmick leaving his fishing-rod in the porch, and looked all round. In the meantime, Wemmick was diving into his coat-pockets, and getting something out of paper there. "'Hello,' said he. "'Here's a couple of pair of gloves. Let's put them on.' As the gloves were white kid gloves, and as the post-office was widened to its utmost extent, I now began to have my strong suspicions. They were strengthened into certainty when I beheld the aged enter at a side-door, escorting a lady. "'Hello,' said Wemmick. "'Here's Miss Skiffins. Let's have a wedding.' That discreet damsel was attired as usual, except that she was now engaged in substituting for her green kid gloves a pair of white. The aged was likewise occupied in preparing a similar sacrifice for the altar of Hymen. The old gentleman, however, experienced so much difficulty in getting his gloves on, that Wemmick found it necessary to put him with his back against a pillar, and then to get behind the pillar himself, 
and pull away at them, while I, for my part, held the old gentleman round the waist, that he might present an equal and safe resistance. By dint of this ingenious scheme, his gloves were got on to perfection. The clerk and clergyman then appearing, we were ranged in order at those fatal rails. True to his notion of seeming to do it all without preparation, I heard Wemmick say to himself, as he took something out of his waistcoat pocket before the service began, "'Hallo! Here's a ring!' I acted in the capacity of backer, or best man, to the bridegroom, while a little limp pew-opener, in a soft bonnet, like a baby's, made a feint of being the bosom friend of Miss Skiffins. The responsibility of giving the lady away devolved upon the aged, which led to the clergyman's being unintentionally scandalised, and it happened thus. When he said, "'Who giveth this woman to be married to this man?' The old gentleman, not in the least knowing what point of the ceremony we had arrived at, stood most amiably beaming at the Ten Commandments, upon which the clergyman said again, "'Who giveth this woman to be married to this man?' The old gentleman, being still in a state of most estimable unconsciousness, the bridegroom cried out in his accustomed voice, "'Now, aged P, you know who giveth?' To which the aged replied, with great briskness, before saying that he gave, "'All right, John, all right, my boy.' And the clergyman came to so gloomy a pause upon it, that I had doubts for the moment whether we should get completely married that day. It was completely done, however, and when we were going out of church, Wemmick took the cover off the font, and put his white gloves in it, and put the cover on again. Mrs. Wemmick, more heedful of the future, put her white gloves in her pocket, and assumed her green. "'Now, Mr. Pip,' said Wemmick, triumphantly shouldering the fishing-rod as we came out, "'let me ask you whether anybody would suppose this to be a wedding-party.' Breakfast had been ordered at a pleasant little tavern, a mile or so away, upon the rising ground beyond the green, and there was a bagatelle board in the room, in case we should desire to unbend our minds, after the solemnity. It was pleasant to observe that Mrs. Wemmick no longer unwound Wemmick's arm when it adapted itself to her figure, but sat in a high-backed chair against the wall, like a violoncello in its case, and submitted to be embraced, as that melodious instrument might have done. We had an excellent breakfast, and when any one declined anything on the table, Wemmick said, "'Provided by contract, you know. Don't be afraid of it.' I drank to the new couple, drank to the aged, drank to the castle, saluted the bride at parting, and made myself as agreeable as I could. Wemmick came down to the door with me, and I again shook hands with him, and wished him joy. "'Thank ye,' said Wemmick, rubbing his hands. She's such a manager of fowls, you have no idea. You shall have some eggs, and judge for yourself. I say, Mr. Pip, calling me back and speaking low, this is altogether a war with sentiment, please. I understand. Not to be mentioned in Little Britain, said I. Wemmick nodded. After what you let out the other day, Mr. Jaggers may as well not know of it. He might think my brain was softening, or something of the kind. End of chapter 55
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty Six. He lay in prison very ill during the whole interval between his committal for trial and the coming round of the sessions. He had broken two ribs. They had wounded one of his lungs, and he breathed with great pain and difficulty, which increased daily. It was a consequence of his hurt that he spoke so low as to be scarcely audible. Therefore he spoke very little. But he was ever ready to listen to me, and it became the first duty of my life to say to him, and read to him, what I knew he ought to hear. Being far too ill to remain in the common prison, he was removed, after the first day or so, into the infirmary. This gave me opportunities of being with him that I could not otherwise have had. And but for his illness he would have been put in irons, for he was regarded as a determined prison-breaker, and I know not what else. Although I saw him every day, it was for only a short time. Hence, the regularly recurring spaces of our separation were long enough to record on his face any slight changes that occurred in his physical state. I do not recollect that I once saw any change in it for the better. He wasted, and became slowly weaker and worse, day by day, from the day when the prison door closed upon him. The kind of submission or resignation that he showed was that of a man who was tired out, I sometimes derived an impression, from his manner, or from a whispered word or two which escaped him, that he pondered over the question whether he might have been a better man under better circumstances. But he never justified himself by a hint tending that way, or tried to bend the past out of its eternal shape. It happened, on two or three occasions in my presence, that his desperate reputation was alluded to by one or other of the people in attendance on him. A smile crossed his face then, and he turned his eyes on me with a trustful look, as if he were confident that I had seen some small redeeming touch in him, even so long ago as when I was a little child. As to all the rest, he was humble and contrite, and I never knew him complain. When the sessions came round, Mr. Jaggers caused an application to be made for the postponement of his trial until the following sessions. It was obviously made with the assurance that he could not live so long, and was refused. The trial came on at once, and when he was put to the bar, he was seated in a chair. No objection was made to my getting close to the dock, on the outside of it, and holding the hand that he stretched forth to me. The trial was very short and very clear. Such things as could be said for him were said. How he had taken to industrious habits, and had thriven lawfully and reputably. But nothing could unsay the fact that he had returned, and was there in presence of the judge and jury. It was impossible to try him for that, and do otherwise than find him guilty. At that time it was the custom, as I learned from my terrible experience of that sessions, to devote a concluding day to the passing of sentences, and to make a finishing effect with the sentence of death. But for the indelible picture that my remembrance now holds before me, I could scarcely believe, even as I write these words, that I saw two and thirty men and women put before the judge to receive that sentence together. Foremost among the two and thirty was he, seated 
that he might get breath enough to keep life in him. The whole scene starts out again, in the vivid colours of the moment, down to the drops of April rain on the windows of the court, glittering in the rays of April sun. Pen in the dock, as I again stood outside it, at the corner, with his hand in mine, were the two and thirty men and women, some defiant, some stricken with terror, some sobbing and weeping, some covering their faces, some staring gloomily about. There had been shrieks from among the women convicts, but they had been stilled. A hush had succeeded. The sheriffs, with their great chains and nosegays, other civic gugors and monsters, criers, ushers, a great gallery full of people, a large theatrical audience, looked on, as the two-and-thirty and the judge were solemnly confronted. Then the judge addressed them. Among the wretched creatures before him, whom he must single out for special address, was one who, almost from his infancy, had been an offender against the laws, who, after repeated imprisonments and punishments, had been at length sentenced to exile for a term of years, and who, under circumstances of great violence and daring, had made his escape, and been re-sentenced to exile for life. That miserable man would seem, for a time, to have become convinced of his errors, when far removed from the scenes of his old offences, and to have lived a peaceable and honest life. But in a fatal moment, yielding to those propensities and passions, the indulgence of which had so long rendered him a scourge to society, he had quitted his haven of rest and repentance, and had come back to the country where he was proscribed. Being here presently denounced, he had for a time succeeded in evading the officers of justice, but being at length seized, while in the act of flight, he had resisted them, and had, he best knew whether by express design or in the blindness of his hardihood, caused the death of his denouncer, to whom his whole career was known. The appointed punishment for his return to the land that had cast him out, being death, and his case being this aggravated case, he must prepare himself to die. The sun was striking in at the great windows of the court, through the glittering drops of rain upon the glass, and it made a broad shaft of light between the two and thirty and the judge, linking both together, and perhaps reminding some among the audience, how both were passing on, with absolute equality, to the greater judgment that knoweth all things, and cannot err. Rising for a moment, a distinct speck of face in this way of light, the prisoner said, "'My lord, I have received my sentence of death from the Almighty, but I bow to yours,' and sat down again. There was some hushing, and the judge went on with what he had to say to the rest. Then they were all formally doomed, and some of them were supported out, and some of them sauntered out with a haggard look of bravery, and a few nodded to the gallery, and two or three shook hands, and others went out chewing the fragments of herb they had taken from the sweet herbs lying about. He went last of all, because of having to be helped from his chair, and to go very slowly, and he held my hand while all the others were removed, and while the audience got up, putting their dresses right, as they might at church or elsewhere, and pointed down at this criminal or that, and most of all at him and me. I earnestly hoped and prayed that he might die before the recorder's report was made, but, 
in the dread of his lingering on, I began that night to write out a petition to the Home Secretary of State, setting forth my knowledge of him, and how it was that he had come back for my sake. I wrote it as fervently and pathetically as I could, and when I had finished it and sent it in, I wrote out other petitions to such men in authority as I hoped were the most merciful, and drew up one to the Crown itself. For several days and nights, after he was sentenced, I took no rest, except when I fell asleep in my chair, but was wholly absorbed in these appeals, and after I had sent them in, I could not keep away from the places where they were, but felt as if they were more hopeful and less desperate when I was near them. In this unreasonable restlessness and pain of mind, I would roam the streets of an evening, wandering by those offices and houses where I had left the petitions. To the present hour, the weary western streets of London, on a cold, dusty spring night, with their ranges of stern, shut-up mansions, and their long rows of lamps, are melancholy to me from this association. The daily visits I could make him were shortened now, and he was more strictly kept, seeing or fancying that I was suspected of an intention of carrying poison to him, I asked to be searched before I sat down at his bedside, and told the officer, who was always there, that I was willing to do anything that would assure him of the singleness of my designs. Nobody was hard with him, or with me. There was duty to be done, and it was done, but not harshly. The officer always gave me the assurance that he was worse, and some other sick prisoners in the room, and some other prisoners who attended on them as sick nurses, malefactors, but not incapable of kindness, God be thanked, always joined in the same report. As the days went on, I noticed more and more that he would lie placidly looking at the white ceiling, with an absence of light in his face, until some word of mine brightened it for an instant, and then it would subside again. Sometimes he was almost, or quite, unable to speak. Then he would answer me with slight pressures on my hand, and I grew to understand his meaning very well. The number of the days had risen to ten when I saw a greater change in him than I had seen yet. His eyes were turned towards the door, and lighted up as I entered. "'Dear boy,' he said, as I sat down by his bed, "'I thought you was late. But I knowed you couldn't be that.' "'It is just the time,' said I. "'I waited for it at the gate.' "'You—' "'Always waits at the gate, don't you, dear boy?' "'Yes, not to lose a moment of the time.' "'Thank ye, dear boy. Thank ye. God bless you. You've never deserted me, dear boy.' I pressed his hand in silence, for I could not forget that I had once meant to desert him. "'And—' "'What's the best of all?' he said. "'You've been more comfortable along of me "'since I was under a dark cloud "'than when the sun shone. "'That's best of all.' He lay on his back, breathing with great difficulty. Do what he would, and love me though he did. The light left his face ever and again, and a film came over the placid look at the white ceiling. "'Are you in much pain to-day?' 
I don't complain of none, dear boy. You never do complain. He had spoken his last words. He smiled, and I understood his touch to mean that he wished to lift my hand and lay it on his breast. I laid it there, and he smiled again, and put both his hands upon it. The allotted time ran out, while we were thus. But, looking round, I found the governor of the prison standing near me, and he whispered, "'You needn't go yet.' I thanked him gratefully, and asked, "'Might I speak to him, if he can hear me?' The governor stepped aside, and beckoned the officer away. The change, though it was made without noise, drew back the film from the placid look at the white ceiling, and he looked most affectionately at me. "'Dear Magwitch, I must tell you now, at last. You understand what I say?' A gentle pressure on my hand. "'You had a child once, whom you loved and lost.' A stronger pressure on my hand. "'She lived, and found powerful friends. She is living now. She is a lady, and very beautiful.' and I love her." With a last faint effort, which would have been powerless but for my yielding to it and assisting it, he raised my hand to his lips. Then he gently let it sink upon his breast again, with his own hands lying on it. The placid look at the white ceiling came back, and passed away, and his head dropped quietly on his breast. Mindful then of what we had read together, I thought of the two men who went up into the temple to pray, and I knew there were no better words that I could say beside his bed than, O oh Lord, be merciful to him, a sinner. End of chapter 56「Chapter 57 of Great Expectations this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 57 Now that I was left wholly to myself, I gave notice of my intention to quit the chambers in the temple as soon as my tenancy could legally determine, and in the meanwhile to underlet them. At once I put bills up in the windows, for I was in debt and had scarcely any money, and began to be seriously alarmed by the state of my affairs. I ought rather to write, that I should have been alarmed, if I had had energy and concentration enough to help me to the clear perception of any truth, beyond the fact that I was falling very ill. The late stress upon me had enabled me to put off illness, but not to put it away. I knew that it was coming on me now, and I knew very little else and was even careless as to that. For a day or two I lay on the sofa, or on the floor, anywhere, according as I happened to sink down, with a heavy head and aching limbs, and no purpose, and no power. Then there came one night, which appeared of great duration, and which teemed with anxiety and horror, and when in the morning I tried to sit up in my bed and think of it, I found I could not do so. Whether I really had been down in Garden Court, in the dead of the night, 
groping about for the boat that I supposed to be there. Whether I had two or three times come to myself on the staircase with great terror, not knowing how I had got out of bed. Whether I had found myself lighting the lamp, possessed by the idea that he was coming up the stairs, and that the lights were blown out. Whether I had been inexpressibly harassed by the distracted talking, laughing, and groaning of someone, and had half suspected those sounds to be of my own making. Whether there had been a closed iron furnace in a dark corner of the room, and a voice had called out over and over again that Miss Havisham was consuming within it. These were things that I tried to settle with myself, and get into some order, as I lay that morning on my bed. But the vapour of a lime-kiln would come between me and them, disordering them all, and it was through the vapour at last that I saw two men looking at me. "'What do you want?' I asked, starting. "'I don't know you.' "'Well, sir,' returned one of them, bending down and touching me on the shoulder, "'this is a matter that you'll soon arrange, I dare say, but you're arrested.' "'What is the debt?' "'Hundred and twenty-three pound, fifteen-six. Jeweller's account, I think.' "'What is to be done?' "'You had better come to my house,' said the man. "'I keep a very nice house.' I made some attempt to get up and dress myself. When I next attended to them, they were standing a little off from the bed, looking at me. I still lay there. "'You see my state,' said I. "'I would come with you if I could, but, indeed, I am quite unable. If you take me from here, I think I shall die by the way.' Perhaps they replied, or argued the point, or tried to encourage me to believe that I was better than I thought. For as much as they hang in my memory, by only this one slender thread, I don't know what they did, except that they forbore to remove me. That I had a fever, and was avoided, that I suffered greatly, that I often lost my reason, that the time seemed interminable, that I confounded impossible existences with my own identity, that I was a brick in the house-wall, and yet entreating to be released from the giddy place where the builders had set me, that I was a steel beam of a vast engine, clashing and whirling over a gulf, and yet that I implored in my own person to have the engine stopped, and my part in it hammered off, that I passed through these phases of disease, I know of my own remembrance, and did, in some sort, know at the time. That I sometimes struggled with real people, in the belief that they were murderers, and that I would all at once comprehend that they meant to do me good, and would then sink exhausted in their arms, and suffer them to lay me down, I also knew at the time. But, above all, I knew that there was a constant tendency in all these people, who, when I was very ill, would present all kinds of extraordinary transformations of the human face, and would be much dilated in size. Above all, I say, I knew that there was an extraordinary tendency in all these people, sooner or later, to settle down into the likeness of Joe. After I had turned the worst point of my illness, I began to notice that while all its other features changed, this one consistent feature did not change. Whoever came about me still settled down into Joe. 
I opened my eyes in the night, and I saw in the great chair at the bedside, Joe. I opened my eyes in the day, and sitting on the window-seat, smoking his pipe in the shaded open window, still I saw Joe. I asked for cooling drink, and the dear hand that gave it me was Joe's. I sank back on my pillow after drinking, and the face that looked so hopefully and tenderly upon me was the face of Joe. At last, one day, I took courage and said, "'Is it Joe?' And the dear old home voice answered, "'Which it air, old chap?' "'Oh, Joe, you break my heart. Look angry at me, Joe. Strike me, Joe. Tell me of my ingratitude. Don't be so good to me.' For. Joe had actually laid his head down on the pillow at my side, and put his arm round my neck, in his joy that I knew him. "'Which, dear old Pip, old chap,' said Joe, "'you and me was ever friends. And when you're well enough to go out for a ride, what larks?' After which Joe withdrew to the window, and stood with his back towards me, wiping his eyes and as my extreme weakness prevented me from getting up and going to him, I lay there, penitently whispering, "'Oh, God bless him! Oh, God bless this gentle Christian man!' Joe's eyes were red when I next found him beside me, but I was holding his hand, and we both felt happy. "'How long, dear Joe?' "'Which you mean to say, Pip, how long—' Have your illness lasted, dear old chap? Yes, Joe. It's the end of May, Pip. Tomorrow is the first of June. And have you been here all that time, dear Joe? Pretty nigh, old chap. For, as I says to Biddy, when the news of your being ill were brought by letter, which it were brought by the post, and being formerly single, he's now married, though underpaid for a deal of walking and shoe-leather, but wealth were not an object on his part, and marriage were the great wish of his art. It is so delightful to hear you, Joe, but I interrupt you in what you said to Biddy. Which it were, said Joe, that how you might be amongst strangers, and that how you and me, having been ever friends, a visit at such a moment might not prove unacceptable. And Biddy, her word were, go to him without loss of time. That, said Joe, summing up with his judicial air, were the word of Biddy. Go to him, Biddy said, without loss of time. In short, I shouldn't greatly deceive you, Joe added, after a little grave reflection, if I represented you, that the word of that young woman were, without a minute's loss of time." There Joe cut himself short, and informed me that I was to be talked to in great moderation, and that I was to take a little nourishment at stated frequent times, whether I felt inclined for it or not, and that I was to submit myself to all his orders. So I kissed his hand, and lay quiet, while he proceeded to indite a note to Biddy with my love in it. Evidently. Biddy had taught Joe to write. 
as I lay in bed, looking at him, it made me, in my weak state, cry again with pleasure, to see the pride with which he set about his letter. My bedstead, divested of its curtains, had been removed, with me upon it, into the sitting-room, as the airiest and largest, and the carpet had been taken away, and the room kept always fresh and wholesome, night and day. At my own writing-table, pushed into a corner and cumbered with little bottles, Joe now sat down to his great work, first choosing a pen from the pen-tray, as if it were a chest of large tools, and tucking up his sleeves, as if he were going to wield a crowbar or sledge-hammer. It was necessary for Joe to hold on heavily to the table with his left elbow, and to get his right leg well out behind him, before he could begin. And when he did begin, he made every downstroke so slowly that it might have been six feet long, while at every upstroke I could hear his pen spluttering extensively. He had a curious idea that the inkstand was on the side of him where it was not, and constantly dipped his pen into space and seemed quite satisfied with the result. Occasionally he was tripped up by some orthographical stumbling-block, but on the whole he got on very well indeed, and when he had signed his name, and had removed a finishing blot from the paper to the crown of his head, with his two forefingers, he got up and hovered about the table, trying the effect of his performance from various points of view, as it lay there, with unbounded satisfaction. Not to make Joe uneasy by talking too much, even if I had been able to talk much, I deferred asking him about Miss Havisham until next day. He shook his head when I then asked him if she had recovered. "'Is she dead, Joe?' "'Why, you see, old chap,' said Joe, in a tone of remonstrance, and by way of getting at it by degrees, "'I wouldn't go so far as to say that.' for that's a deal to say. But she ain't. Living, Joe? That's neither where it is, said Joe. She ain't living. Did she linger long, Joe? Arter you was took ill, pretty much about what you might call, if you was to put to it, a week, said Joe, still determined on my account to come at everything by degrees. Dear Joe, have you heard what becomes of her property? Well, old chap, said Joe, it do appear that she had settled the most of it, which I mean to say tidied up on Mrs. Stella. But she had wrote out a little cockle shell in her own hand a day or two afore the accident, leaving a cool four thousand to Mr. Matthew Pocket. And why? Do you suppose, above all things, Pip, she left that cool four thousand run to him? Because of Pip's account of him, the said Matthew. I'm told by Biddy that ere the writing, said Joe, repeating the legal turn, as if it did him infinite good. Account of him, the said Matthew, and a cool four thousand, Pip. I never discovered from whom Joe derived the conventional temperature of the four thousand pounds, but it appeared to make the sum of money more to him, and he had a manifest relish in insisting on its being cool. This account gave me great joy, as it perfected the only good thing I had done. 
I asked Joe whether he had heard if any of the other relations had any legacies. "'Miss Sarah,' said Joe, "'she have twenty-five pound per annum for to buy pills on account of being bilious. Miss Georgiana, she have twenty pound down. Mrs. Uh, what's the name of them wild beasts with umps, old chap?' "'Camels,' said I, wondering why he could possibly want to know. Joe nodded. "'Mrs. Camels,' by which I presently understood he meant Camilla, "'she have five pound for to buy brush-lights to put her in spirits when she wake up in the night.' The accuracy of these recitals was sufficiently obvious to me to give me great confidence in Joe's information. "'And now,' said Joe, "'you ain't that strong yet, old chap, that you can take in more, nor one additional shovelful to-day. Old Orlick, he's been a-bustin' open a dwelling-house.' "'Whose?' said I. "'Not, I grant you, but what his manners is given to blusterous,' said Joe, apologetically. "'Still, a Englishman's house is his castle.' and castles must not be busted, except when done in war-time. And what's here, the failings on his part, he were a corn and seedsman in his heart. Is it Pumblechook's house that has been broken into, then? That's it, Pip, said Joe. And they took his till, and they took his cash-box, and they drink his wine, and they partook of his wills, and they slapped his face and they pulled his nose, and they tied him up to his bedpost, and they give him a dozen, and they stuffed his mouth full of flowering annuals to prevent his crying out. But he knowed Orlick, and Orlick's in the county jail." By these approaches we arrived at unrestricted conversation. I was slow to gain strength, but I did slowly and surely become less weak, and Joe stayed with me, and I fancied I was little Pip again. For the tenderness of Joe was so beautifully proportioned to my need, that I was like a child in his hands. He would sit and talk to me in the old confidence, and with the old simplicity, and in the old unassertive protecting ways, so that I would half believe that all my life, since the days of the old kitchen, was one of the mental troubles of the fever that was gone. He did everything for me, except the household work for which he had engaged a very decent woman, after paying off the laundress on his first arrival. "'Which I do assure you, Pip,' he would often say, in explanation of that liberty, "'I found her a tap in the spare bed, like a cask of beer, and drawing off the feathers in a bucket for sale, which she would have tapped your next, and drawed it off with you a lying on it, and was then a-carrying away the coals gradually, in the soup tureen and vegetable dishes, and the wine and spirits in your Wellington boots. We looked forward to the day when I should go out for a ride, as we had once looked forward to the day of my apprenticeship. And when the day came, and an open carriage was got into the lane, Joe wrapped me up, took me in his arms, carried me down to it, and put me in as if I were still a small, helpless creature to whom he had so abundantly given of the wealth of his great nature. And Joe got in beside me, and we drove away together into the country, where the rich summer growth 
was already on the trees, and on the grass, and sweet summer scents filled all the air. The day happened to be Sunday, and when I looked on the loveliness around me, and thought how it had grown and changed, and how the little wild flowers had been forming, and the voices of the birds had been strengthening by day and by night, under the sun and under the stars, while poor I lay burning and tossing on my bed, the mere remembrance of having burned and tossed there came like a check upon my peace. But when I heard the Sunday bells, and looked around a little more upon the outspread beauty, I felt that I was not nearly thankful enough, that I was too weak yet to be even that, and I laid my head on Joe's shoulder, as I had laid it long ago when he had taken me to the fair, or where not, and it was too much for my young senses. More composure came to me after a while, and we talked as we used to talk, lying on the grass at the old battery. There was no change whatever in Joe. Exactly what he had been in my eyes then, he was in my eyes still, just as simply faithful and as simply right. When we got back again, and he lifted me out and carried me, so easily, across the court and up the stairs, I thought of that eventful Christmas day, when he had carried me over the marshes. We had not yet made any allusion to my change of fortune, nor did I know how much of my late history he was acquainted with. I was so doubtful of myself now, and put so much trust in him, that I could not satisfy myself whether I ought to refer to it when he did not. "'Have you heard, Joe?' I asked him that evening, upon further consideration, as he smoked his pipe at the window, who my patron was. "'I heard,' returned Joe, "'as it were not Miss Aversham, old chap. "'Did you hear who it was, Joe?' "'Well, I heard, as it were a person, "'what sent the person, what give you the bank-notes "'at the jolly bargeman, Pip.' "'So it was. "'Astonishing.' said Joe, in the placidest way. "'Did you hear that he was dead, Joe?' I presently asked, with increasing diffidence. "'Which? He must sent the bank-notes, Pip?' "'Yes.' "'I think,' said Joe, after meditating a long time, and looking rather evasively at the window-seat, "'as I did hear tell that how he were something or another, in a general way, in that direction.' "'Did you hear anything of his circumstances, Joe?' "'Not particular, Pip.' "'If you would like to hear, Joe,' I was beginning, when Joe got up and came to my sofa. "'Looky here, old chap,' said Joe, bending over me. "'Ever the best of friends, ain't us, Pip?' I was ashamed to answer him. "'Wery good, then,' said Joe, as if I had answered. "'That's all right. That's agreed upon.' Then why go into subjects, old chap, which, as betwixt two such, must be for ever unnecessary? There's subjects enough as betwixt two such, without unnecessary ones. Lord, do think of your poor sister in her rampages, and don't you remember Tickler? I do indeed, Joe. Looky here, old chap, said Joe. I done what I could to keep you and Tickler in sunders, but my power were not always fully equal to my inclinations, for when your poor sister had a mind to drop into you, 
"'It were not so much,' said Joe, in his favourite argumentative way, "'that she dropped into me, too. "'If I put myself in opposition to her, "'but that she dropped into you, always heavier for it. "'I noticed that. "'It ain't a grab at a man's whisker, "'not yet a shake or two of a man, "'to which your sister was quite welcome. "'That would put a man off from getting a little child out of punishment. "'But when that little child is dropped into, heavier, for that grab of whisker or shaking, and that man, naturally, up and says to himself, Where is the good as you are a-doing? I grant you, I see the arm, says the man, but I don't see the good. I call upon you, sir, therefore, to paint out the good. The man says, I observed as Joe waited for me to speak, The man says, Joe assented, is he right, that man? Dear Joe, he is always right. Well, old chap, said Joe, then abide by your words. If he's always right, which in general he's more likely wrong, he's right when he says this. Supposing ever you kept any little matter to yourself when you was a little child, you kept it mostly because you knowed as J. Gargery's power to part you and Tickler in sunders were not fully equal to his inclinations. Therefore, think no more of it as betwixt two such, and do not let us pass remarks upon unnecessary subjects. Biddy give herself a deal of trouble with me afore I left, for I am almost awful dull, as I should view it in this light, and, viewing it in this light, as I should so put it, both of which, said Joe, quite charmed with his logical arrangement, being done, now this to you a true friend, say, namely, you mustn't go a-overdoing on it, but you must have your supper and your wine and water, and you must be put betwixt the sheets." The delicacy with which Joe dismissed this theme, and the sweet tact and kindness with which Biddy, who with her woman's wit had found me out so soon, had prepared him for it, made a deep impression on my mind. But whether Joe knew how poor I was, and how my great expectations had all dissolved, like our own marsh mists before the sun, I could not understand. Another thing in Joe that I could not understand when it first began to develop itself, but which I soon arrived at a sorrowful comprehension of, was this. As I became stronger and better, Joe became a little less easy with me. In my weakness and entire dependence on him, the dear fellow had fallen into the old tone, and called me by the old names, the dear old Pip, old chap, that now were music in my ears. I too had fallen into the old ways, only happy and thankful that he let me. But, imperceptibly, though I held by them fast, Joe's hold upon them began to slacken, and whereas I wondered at this at first, I soon began to understand that the cause of it was in me, and that the fault of it was all mine. Ah! Had I given Joe no reason to doubt my constancy, and to think that in prosperity I should grow cold to him and cast him off? Had I given Joe's innocent heart no cause to feel instinctively that as I got stronger his hold upon me would be weaker, and that he had better loosen it in time and let me go before I plucked myself away? It was on the third or fourth occasion of my going out walking in the temple gardens, 
leaning on Joe's arm, that I saw this change in him very plainly. We had been sitting in the bright warm sunlight, looking at the river, and I chanced to say as we got up, "'See, Joe, I can walk quite strongly. Now you shall see me walk by myself.' "'Which do not overdo it, Pip,' said Joe. "'But I shall be happy for to see you able, sir.' The last word grated on me. But how could I remonstrate? I walked no further than the gate of the gardens, and then pretended to be weaker than I was, and asked Joe for his arm. Joe gave it me, but was thoughtful. I, for my part, was thoughtful too. For how best to check this growing change in Joe was a great perplexity to my remorseful thoughts. That I was ashamed to tell him exactly how I was placed, and what I had come down to, I do not seek to conceal. But I hope my reluctance was not quite an unworthy one. He would want to help me out of his little savings, I knew, and I knew that he ought not to help me, and that I must not suffer him to do it. It was a thoughtful evening with both of us. But before we went to bed, I had resolved that I would wait over to-morrow, to-morrow being Sunday, and would begin my new course with the new week. On Monday morning I would speak to Joe about this change. I would lay aside this last vestige of reserve. I would tell him what I had in my thoughts. That secondly, not yet arrived at, and why I had not decided to go out to Herbert, and then the change would be conquered for ever. As I cleared, Joe cleared, and it seemed as though he had sympathetically arrived at a resolution too. We had a quiet day on the Sunday, and we rode out into the country, and then walked in the fields. "'I feel thankful that I have been ill, Joe,' I said. "'Dear old Pip, old chap, you're almost come round, sir. "'It has been a memorable time for me, Joe. "'Likewise for myself, sir,' Joe returned. "'We have had a time together, Joe, that I can never forget. "'There were days once, I know, that I did for a while forget, "'but I never shall forget these. "'Pip,' said Joe, appearing a little hurried and troubled, "'There has been larks, and, dear sir, what have been betwixt us, have been.' At night, when I had gone to bed, Joe came into my room as he had done all through my recovery. He asked me if I felt sure that I was as well as in the morning. "'Yes, dear Joe, quite. "'And are always a-getting stronger, old chap?' "'Yes, dear Joe, steadily.' Joe patted the coverlet on my shoulder, with his great good hand, and said, in what I thought a husky voice, "'Good night!' When I got up in the morning, refreshed and stronger yet, I was full of my resolution to tell Joe all without delay. I would tell him before breakfast. I would dress at once, and go to his room, and surprise him, for it was the first day I had been up early. I went to his room, and he was not there. Not only was he not there, but his box was gone. I hurried then to the breakfast-table, and on it found a letter. These were its brief contents. "'Not wishful to intrude. I have departured. For you are well again, dear Pip, and will do better without J.O. P.S. Ever the best of friends.' Enclosed in the letter 
was a receipt for the debt and costs on which I had been arrested. Down to that moment I had vainly supposed that my creditor had withdrawn or suspended proceedings until I should be quite recovered. I had never dreamed of Joe's having paid the money, but Joe had paid it, and the receipt was in his name. What remained for me now but to follow him to the dear old forge, and there to have out my disclosure to him, and my penitent remonstrance with him, and there to relieve my mind and heart of that reserved secondly, which had begun as a vague something lingering in my thoughts, and had formed into a settled purpose? The purpose was that I would go to Biddy, that I would show her how humbled and repentant I came back, that I would tell her how I had lost all I once hoped for, that I would remind her of our old confidences in my first unhappy time. Then I would say to her, Biddy, I think you once liked me very well, when my errant heart, even while it strayed away from you, was quieter and better with you than it ever has been since. If you can like me only half as well once more, if you can take me with all my faults and disappointments on my head, if you can receive me like a forgiven child, and indeed I am a sorry Biddy, and have as much need of a hushing voice and a soothing hand, I hope I am a little worthier of you than I was. Not much, but a little. And, Biddy, it shall rest with you to say whether I shall work at the forge with Joe, or whether I shall try for any different occupation down in this country, or whether we shall go away to a distant place where an opportunity awaits me, which I set aside when it was offered, until I knew your answer. And now, dear Biddy, if you can tell me that you will go through the world with me, you will surely make it a better world for me, and me a better man for it, and I will try hard to make it a better world for you. Such was my purpose. After three days more of recovery, I went down to the old place to put it in execution, and how I sped in it is all I have left to tell. End of chapter 57「Chapter fifty eight of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter fifty eight. The tidings of my high fortunes, having had a heavy fall, had got down to my native place and its neighbourhood before I got there. I found the blue boar in possession of the intelligence and I found that it made a great change in the boar's demeanour. Whereas the boar had cultivated my good opinion with warm assiduity when I was coming into property, the boar was exceedingly cool on the subject now that I was going out of property. It was evening when I arrived, much fatigued by the journey I had so often made so easily. The boar could not put me into my usual bedroom, which was engaged, probably by someone who had expectations, and could only assign me a very indifferent chamber among the pigeons and post-chaises up the yard. But I had as sound a sleep in that lodging, as in the most superior accommodation the boar could have given me, and the quality of my dreams was about the same as in the best bedroom. Early in the morning, while my breakfast was getting ready, I strolled round by Sartis' house. There were printed bills on the gate, and on bits of carpet hanging out of the windows, 
announcing a sale by auction of the household furniture and effects next week. The house itself was to be sold as old building materials, and pulled down. Lot 1 was marked in whitewash, knock-knee letters on the brew-house. Lot 2, on that part of the main building, which had been so long shut up. Other lots were marked off on other parts of the structure, and the ivy had been torn down to make room for the inscriptions, and much of it trailed low in the dust, and was withered already. Stepping in for a moment at the open gate, and looking around me, with the uncomfortable air of a stranger who had no business there, I saw the auctioneer's clerk walking on the casks, and telling them off for the information of a catalogue compiler, pen in hand, who made a temporary desk of the wheeled chair I had so often pushed along to the tune of old Clem. When I got back to my breakfast in the Boar's coffee-room, I found Mr. Pumblechook conversing with the landlord. Mr. Pumblechook, not improved in appearance by his late nocturnal adventure, was waiting for me and addressed me in the following terms. "'Young man, I am sorry to see you brawl, but what else could be expected? What else could be expected?' As he extended his hand with a magnificently forgiving air, and as I was broken by illness and unfit to quarrel, I took it. "'William?' said Mr. Pumblechook to the waiter. "'Put a muffin on table, and has it come to this? Has it come to this?' I frowningly sat down to my breakfast. Mr. Pumblechook stood over me, and poured out my tea, before I could touch the teapot, with the air of a benefactor who was resolved to be true to the last. "'William,' said Mr. Pumblechook, mournfully, "'put the salt on. In happier times—addressing me, I think you took sugar. And did you take milk? You did. Sugar and milk. William, bring a watercress. Thank you, said I shortly, but I don't eat watercresses. You don't eat them, returned Mr. Pumblechook sighing and nodding his head several times, as if he might have expected that, and as if abstinence from watercresses were consistent with my downfall. "'True! The simple fruits of the earth! No, you needn't bring any, William!' I went on with my breakfast, and Mr. Pumblechook continued to stand over me, staring fishily and breathing noisily, as he always did. "'Little more than skin and bone,' mused Mr. Pumblechook aloud. "'And yet, when he went from here, I may say with my blessing, and I spread afore him my humble store, like the bee, he was as plump as a peach.' This reminded me of the wonderful difference between the servile manner in which he had offered his hand in my new prosperity, saying, "'May I?' and the ostentatious clemency with which he had just now exhibited the same fat five fingers. "'Ah!' he went on, handing me the bread and butter. "'And are uh, you are going to Joseph?' "'In heaven's name,' said I, firing in spite of myself, "'what does it matter to you where I am going? Leave that teapot alone!' It was the worst course I could have taken. 
because it gave Pumblechook the opportunity he wanted. "'Yes, young man,' said he, releasing the handle of the article in question, retiring a step or two from my table, and speaking for the behoof of the landlord and waiter at the door. "'I will leave that teapot alone. You are right, young man. For once you are right. I forget myself when I take such an interest in your breakfast as to wish your frame, exhausted by the debilitating effects of prodigality, to be stimulated by the wholesome nourishment of your forefathers. And yet,' said Pumblechook, turning to the landlord and waiter, and pointing me out at arm's length, "'This is him, as I ever sported with in his days of happy infancy.' "'Tell me not, it cannot be. I tell you this is him.' A low murmur from the two replied. The waiter appeared to be particularly affected. "'This is him,' said Pumblechook. "'As I have rode in my shay-cart. This is him, as I have seen brought up by hand. This is him unto the sister of which I was uncle by marriage.' as her name was Georgiana Maria, from her own mother. Let him deny it if he can." The waiter seemed convinced that I could not deny it, and that it gave the case a black look. "'Young man,' said Pumblechook, screwing his head at me in the old fashion, "'you were a-goin' to Joseph. What does it matter to me, you ask me, where you were a-going? "'I say to you, sir, you air a-going to Joseph.' The waiter coughed, as if he modestly invited me to get over that. "'Now,' said Pumblechook, and all this with a most exasperating air, of saying in the course of virtue what was perfectly convincing and conclusive, "'I will tell you what to say to Joseph. "'Here is squires of the ball present.' known and respected in this town. And here is William, which his father's name was Potkins, if I do not deceive myself. You do not, sir, said William. In their presence, pursued Pumpertook, I will tell you, young man, what to say to Joseph. Says you, Joseph, I have this day seen my earliest benefactor, and the founder of my fortunes. I will name no names, Joseph, but so they are pleased to call him uptown, and I have seen that man. I swear I don't see him here, said I. Say that likewise, retorted Pumblechook. Say you said that, and even Joseph will probably betray surprise. There you're quite mistaken, said I. I know better. "'Says you,' Pumblechook went on, "'Joseph, I have seen that man, and that man bears you no malice, and bears me no malice. He knows your character, Joseph, and is well acquainted with your pig-headedness and ignorance. And he knows my character, Joseph, and he knows my want of gratitude. Yes, Joseph,' says you. Here Pumblechook shook his head and hand at me. He knows my total deficiency of common human gratitude. He knows it, Joseph, 
as none can. You do not know it, Joseph, having no call to know it, but that man do. Windy donkey as he was, it really amazed me that he could have the face to talk thus to mine. Says you, Joseph, he gave me a little message, which I will now repeat. It was that in my being brought low, he saw the finger of providence. He knowed that finger when he saw it, Joseph, <laughs> and he saw it plain. It painted out this writing, Joseph. Reward of ingratitude to his earliest benefactor and founder of Fortins. But that man said he did not repent of what he had done, Joseph. Not at all. It was right to do it. It was kind to do it. It was benevolent to do it. And he would do it again. It's pity, said I scornfully, as I finished my interrupted breakfast, that the man did not say what he had done, and would do again. "'Squires of the boar,' Pumblechook was now addressing the landlord, "'and William, I have no objections to your mentioning either up-town or down-town, if such should be your wishes, that it was right to do it, kind to do it, benevolent to do it, and that I would do it again.' With those words, the impostor shook them both by the hand, with an air, and left the house, leaving me much more astonished than delighted by the virtues of that same indefinite it. I was not long after him in leaving the house, too, and when I went down the high street, I saw him holding forth, no doubt, to the same effect, at his shop-door to a select group, who honoured me with very unfavourable glances, as I passed on the opposite side of the way. But it was only the pleasanter to turn to Biddy and to Joe, whose great forbearance shone more brightly than before, if that could be, contrasted with this brazen pretender. I went towards them slowly, for my limbs were weak, but with a sense of increasing relief as I drew nearer to them, and a sense of leaving arrogance and untruthfulness further and further behind. The June weather was delicious. The sky was blue, the larks were soaring high over the green corn. I thought all that countryside more beautiful and peaceful, by far, than I had ever known it to be yet. Many pleasant pictures of the life I would lead there, and of the change for the better that would come over my character, when I had a guiding spirit at my side, whose simple faith and clear home-wisdom I had proved beguiled my way. They awakened a tender emotion in me. For my heart was softened by my return, and such a change had come to pass that I felt like one who was toiling home, barefoot from distant travel, and whose wanderings had lasted many years. The schoolhouse where Biddy was mistress I had never seen, but the little roundabout lane by which I entered the village for quietness' sake took me past it. I was disappointed to find that the day was a holiday, no children were there, and Biddy's house was closed. Some hopeful notion of seeing her busily engaged in her daily duties, before she saw me, had been in my mind, and was defeated. But the forge was a very short distance off, and I went towards it under the sweet green limes, listening for the clink of Joe's hammer. 
long after I ought to have heard it, and long after I had fancied I heard it, and found it but a fancy, all was still. The limes were there, and the white thorns were there, and the chestnut trees were there, and their leaves rustled harmoniously when I stopped to listen. But the clink of Joe's hammer was not in the midsummer wind. Almost fearing, without knowing why, to come in view of the forge, I saw it at last, and saw that it was closed. No gleam of fire, no glittering shower of sparks, no roar of bellows, all shut up and still. But the house was not deserted, and the best parlour seemed to be in use, for there were white curtains fluttering in its window, and the window was open and gay with flowers. I went softly towards it, meaning to peep over the flowers, when Joe and Biddy stood before me arm in arm. At first Biddy gave a cry, as if she thought it was my apparition, but in another moment she was in my embrace. I wept to see her, and she wept to see me. I, because she looked so fresh and pleasant, she, because I looked so worn and white. "'But, dear Biddy, how smart you are!' "'Yes, dear Pip!' "'And, Joe, how smart you are!' "'Yes, dear old Pip, old chap!' I looked at both of them, from one to the other, and then— "'It's my wedding day!' cried Biddy, in a burst of happiness, "'and I am married to Joe!' They had taken me into the kitchen, and I had laid my head down on the old deal-table. Biddy held one of my hands to her lips, and Joe's restoring touch was on my shoulder. "'Which ye warn't strong enough, my dear, for to be surprised,' said Joe. And Biddy said, "'I ought to have thought of it, dear Joe, but I was too happy.' They were both so overjoyed to see me, so proud to see me, so touched by my coming to them so delighted that I should have come by accident to make their day complete. My first thought was one of great thankfulness that I had never breathed this last baffled hope to Joe. How often, while he was with me in my illness, had it risen to my lips! How irrevocable would have been his knowledge of it, if he had remained with me but another hour! "'Dear Biddy,' said I, "'you have the best husband in the whole world.' and if you could have seen him by my bed, you would have—but no, you couldn't love him better than you do." "'No, I couldn't indeed,' said Biddy. "'And, dear Joe, you have the best wife in the whole world, and she will make you as happy as even you deserve to be, you dear, good, noble Joe.' Joe looked at me with a quivering lip, and fairly put his sleeve before his eyes. "'And Joe, and Biddy both, as you have been to church to-day, and are in charity and love with all mankind, receive my humble thanks for all you have done for me, and all I have so ill repaid. And when I say that I am going away within the hour, for I am soon going abroad, and that I shall never rest until I have worked for the money with which you have kept me out of prison, and have sent it to you, don't think, dear Joe and Biddy, that if I could repay it a thousand times over, I suppose I could cancel a farthing of the debt I owe you, or that I would do so if I could." They were both melted by these words, and both entreated me to say no more. But I must say more. Dear Joe, I hope you'll have children to love, and that some little fellow will sit in this chimney-corner of a winter night, who may remind you of another little fellow gone out of it for ever. Don't tell him, Joe, that I was thankless 
Don't tell him, Biddy, that I was ungenerous and unjust. Only tell him that I honoured you both, because you were both so good and true, and that, as your child, I said it would be natural to him to grow up a much better man than I did. "'I ain't a-goin,' said Joe, from behind his sleeve, "'to tell him nothing o' that nature, Pip, nor Biddy ain't, nor yet no one ain't. And now, though I know you have already done it in your own kind hearts, pray tell me both that you forgive me. Pray let me hear you say the words, that I may carry the sound of them away with me, and then I shall be able to believe that you can trust me, and think better of me in the time to come. "'Oh, dear old Pip, old chap,' said Joe, "'God knows as I forgive you, if I have anything to forgive.' "'Amen, and God knows I do,' echoed Biddy. "'Now, let me go up and look at my old little room, and rest there a few minutes by myself, and then, when I have eaten and drunk with you, go with me as far as the finger-post, dear Joe and Biddy, before we say good-bye.' I sold all I had, and put aside as much as I could, for a composition with my creditors, who gave me ample time to pay them in full, and I went out and joined Herbert. Within a month I had quitted England, and within two months I was clerk to Clarica and Co., and within four months I assumed my first undivided responsibility. For the beam across the parlour ceiling at Mill Pond Bank had then ceased to tremble, under old Bill Barley's growls, and was at peace, and Herbert had gone away to marry Clara, and I was left in sole charge of the eastern branch until he brought her back. Many a year went round before I was partner in the house, but I lived happily with Herbert and his wife, and lived frugally, and paid my debts, and maintained a constant correspondence with Biddy and Joe. It was not until I became third in the firm that Clarica betrayed me to Herbert, but, he then declared, that the secret of Herbert's partnership had been long enough upon his conscience, and he must tell it. So he told it, and Herbert was as much moved as amazed, and the dear fellow and I were not the worse friends for the long concealment. I must not leave it to be supposed that we were ever a great house, or that we made mints of money. We were not in a grand way of business but we had a good name, and worked for our profits, and did very well. We owed so much to Herbert's ever-cheerful industry and readiness, that I often wondered how I had conceived that old idea of his inaptitude, until I was one day enlightened by the reflection that perhaps the inaptitude had never been in him at all, but had been in me. End of chapter 58 Chapter Fifty Nine of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty Nine. For eleven years, I had not seen Joe nor Biddy with my bodily eyes, though they had both been often before my fancy in the East, when, upon an evening in December. An hour or two after dark, I laid my hand softly on the latch of the old kitchen door. I touched it so softly that I was not heard, 
and looked in unseen. There, smoking his pipe in the old place by the kitchen firelight, as hale and as strong as ever, though a little grey, sat Joe, and there, fenced into the corner with Joe's leg, and sitting on my own little stool looking at the fire, was I again. "'We give him the name of Pip, for your sake, dear old chap,' said Joe, delighted when I took another stool by the child's side, but I did not rumple his hair. "'And we hoped he might grow a little bit like you, and we think he do.' I thought so, too, and I took him out for a walk next morning, and we talked immensely, understanding one another to perfection, and I took him down to the churchyard, and set him on a certain tombstone there, and he showed me from that elevation which stone was sacred to the memory of Philip Pirrup, late of this parish, and also Georgiana, wife of the above. "'Biddy,' said I, when I talked with her after dinner, as her little girl lay sleeping in her lap, "'you must give Pip to me one of these days, or lend him, at all events.' "'No, no,' said Biddy, gently. "'You must marry.' "'So Herbert and Clara say. But I don't think I shall, Biddy. I have so settled down in their home that it's not at all likely. I am already quite an old bachelor.' Biddy looked down at her child, and put its little hand to her lips, and then put the good matronly hand with which she had touched it into mine. There was something in the action and in the light pressure of Biddy's wedding-ring that had a very pretty eloquence in it. "'Dear Pip,' said Biddy, "'you are sure you don't fret for her?' "'Oh, no, I think not, Biddy. "'Tell me, as an old, old friend, have you quite forgotten her?' "'My dear Biddy, I have forgotten nothing in my life that ever had a foremost place there, and little that ever had any place there. But that poor dream, as I once used to call it, has all gone by, Biddy all gone by. Nevertheless, I knew while I said those words, that I secretly intended to revisit the site of the old house that evening, alone, for her sake. Yes, even so, for Estella's sake. I had heard of her as leading a most unhappy life, and as being separated from her husband, who had used her with great cruelty, and who had become quite renowned as a compound of pride, avarice, brutality and meanness. I had heard of the death of her husband, from an accident consequent on his ill-treatment of a horse. This release had befallen her some two years before. For anything I knew, she was married again. The early dinner-hour at Joe's left me abundance of time, without hurrying my talk with Biddy, to walk over to the old spot before dark. But, what with loitering on the way, to look at old objects, and to think of old times, the day had quite declined when I came to the place. There was no house now, no brewery, no building whatever left, but the wall of the old garden. The cleared space had been enclosed with a rough fence, and looking over it, I saw that some of the old ivy had struck root anew, and was growing green on low, quiet mounds of ruin. A gate and the fence standing ajar, I pushed it open and went in. A cold, silvery mist had veiled the afternoon, and the moon was not yet up to scatter it. But the stars were shining beyond the mist, and the moon was coming, and the evening was not dark. 
I could trace out where every part of the old house had been, and where the brewery had been, and where the gates, and where the casks. I had done so, and was looking along the desolate garden walk, when I beheld a solitary figure in it. The figure showed itself aware of me, as I advanced. It had been moving towards me, but it stood still. As I drew nearer, I saw it to be the figure of a woman. As I drew nearer yet, it was about to turn away, when it stopped, and let me come up with it. Then it faltered, as if much surprised, and uttered my name, and I cried out, "'Estella? I am greatly changed. I wonder you know me.' The freshness of her beauty was indeed gone, but its indescribable majesty and its indescribable charm remained. Those attractions in it I had seen before. What I had never seen before was the saddened, softened light of the once proud eyes. What I had never felt before was the friendly touch of the once insensible hand. We sat down on a bench that was near, and I said, "'After so many years, it is strange that we should thus meet again, Estella, here, where our first meeting was. Do you often come back?' "'I have never been here since.' "'Nor I.' The moon began to rise, and I thought of the placid look at the white ceiling, which had passed away. The moon began to rise, and I thought of the pressure on my hand, when I had spoken the last words he had heard on earth. Estella was the next to break the silence that ensued between us. "'I have very often hoped, and intended to come back, but have been prevented by many circumstances. Poor poor old place." The silvery mist was touched with the first rays of the moonlight, and the same rays touched the tears that dropped from her eyes. Not knowing that I saw them, and setting herself to get the better of them, she said quietly, "'Were you wondering, as you walked along, how it came to be left in this condition?' "'Yes, Estella. "'The ground belongs to me.' It is the only possession I have not relinquished. Everything else has gone from me, little by little, but I have kept this. It was the subject of the only determined resistance I made in all the wretched years. Is it to be built on? At last it is. I came here to take leave of it before its change. And you? she said, in a voice of touching interest to a wanderer. You live abroad still? Still. And do well, I am sure. I work pretty hard for a sufficient living, and therefore, yes, I do well. I have often thought of you, said Estella. Have you? Of late, very often. There was a long, hard time when I kept far from me the remembrance of what I had thrown away when I was quite ignorant of its worth. But, since my duty has not been incompatible with the admission of that remembrance, I have given it a place in my heart." "'You have always held your place in my heart,' I answered. And we were silent again, until she spoke. "'I little thought,' said Estella, "'that I should take leave of you in taking leave of this spot. I am very glad to do so.' "'Glad to part again, Estella?' To me, parting is a painful thing. To me, the remembrance of our last parting 
has been ever mournful and painful. "'But you said to me,' returned Estella, very earnestly, "'God bless you. God forgive you. And if you could say that to me then, you will not hesitate to say that to me now, now when suffering has been stronger than all other teaching, and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be. I have been bent and broken, but, I hope, into a better shape. Be as considerate and good to me as you were, and tell me we are friends." "'We are friends,' said I, rising and bending over her, as she rose from the bench. "'And will continue friends apart?' said Estella. I took her hand in mine, and we went out of the ruined place. And, as the morning mists had risen long ago, when I first left the forge, so the evening mists were rising now, and in all the broad expanse of tranquil light they showed to me, I saw no shadow of another parting from her. End of chapter 59 End of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens